<laughs> I was like, okay, so then what's the fucking problem? The only thing I could see is, like, it had to be Zencaster installing yeah. things out. So and I assume, like, we're recording on the weekend, so there's probably as many, there's probably, like, triple the amount of people as there would be on a weeknight recording right now just because everybody's off on a weekend for the most part, right? Yeah, fair enough. And recording their weekly podcasts. So. Yeah. Speaking of which, let's record our weekly podcast. We can do that. That is something we should probably get to at some point. As opposed to like doing all the behind the scenes stuff. Let's do that. Makes for good preamble. So welcome yes. back, dear listeners, to Dance Robot Dance, our 163rd episode. I am Tim. I am back from Dragon Con Wonderland this week. And now we have lost Paul, but with me I have Mark. Say hello, Mark. Hi guys, how's it going? Yeah, so uh, it's been a couple crazy weeks with Dragon Con and everything. I'll talk about that a little bit more. I guess it might be my Geek of the Week. I would would imagine. Yeah, (laughs) I would imagine it would be your Geek of the Week. But we'll get to that very briefly because there's a fucking dearth of news this week. There's very little going on in the nerdy spheres this week. I guess it was holiday weekend and everything. Short week, but Mark and I were just talking. One of the biggest ones is that Nintendo finally released a bunch of classic Super NES games on the Switch, including stuff like Star Fox and F-Zero and the SNES Kirby game and probably some Mario and Zelda in there as well. Yeah, Link to the Past and uh, both Super Mario World and Super Mario World, like Yoshi's Island. So, oh, what a coincidence! You were just talking about Super Mario World just last week. I was. It was interesting that that happened. I didn't even know that was happening. Like the direct kind of came up in the middle of the week, and Paul sent me the message and was like, "Hey, did you see the direct today?" And I was like, "I usually just look at them afterwards, right? Like I just go on yeah. Kotaku and check like what happened. I'm not going to sit there for a half an hour listening to a direct." But I looked and it was like right at the top, Super Nintendo games. I was like, "Well, <laughs> I named like four of them in my thing last week." Super or two, Super least, Metroid or was in there too, yeah. and. Yeah. I mentioned Super Metroid for sure, and Link to the Past. I mentioned as well the original like, yeah, Mario so. Kart. Yeah, Mario Kart. I mentioned all those. All that stuff's in there. So yeah, it's uh, if you have your Switch online, it's maybe go time to go download a piece of software. Cause you're getting like thirty free or twenty free. I can't remember what it was. I think 20, it's 20, 20 games. Yeah, yeah, twenty SNES games. Ten of which are worth your time. The other ten. Yeah, there's some shit ones. Yeah, definitely give Dragon's Crest a trance if you haven't before, though, because that game is like a total hidden gem. It was late, 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 kind of in the SNES life cycle Mm -hmm. where that was released. Uh, It's kind of like a spinoff slash sequel to Ghouls and Ghosts or Super Girls and Ghosts Mm -hmm. and is awesome. Yeah, it's one of those games like I'm going to replay now that it's on there because I haven't played it since SNES time. So there you go. We have some of the other ones real bad. Like Yeah, bad. I'm just looking. There's a Kotaku did a thing where they like ranked them all and yes, commentaried yeah. them and everything. And some of them are just like, yeah, I played this for a minute and then said, fuck it kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, there was, I did that. I, I flipped through a couple of them, like the ones that I didn't necessarily recognize. Cause I, I'm like, I probably saw this as a review when I was a kid that it was dog shit and just never played it. And when I booted them up, I'm like, yep. Suspicions confirmed. <laughs> nice. And what else happened? So the, Todd Phillips' Joker movie is starting to uh, have early reviews and be shown at film festivals and shit. And holy shit, this thing is getting really good reviews and got like an eight minute fucking standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival and won an award there. And I don't know what to think. Like, either that means it's going to be great or that just it's going to be like real art housey and like critics are going to love it and actual comic book fans are going to be like, what the fuck is this horse shit? I haven't seen a review from a source that wasn't like a newspaper or that would give it like a formal review. So I'm still waiting to hear like 
an IO9. Oh, there's an IO9 review. There's an IO9 review. There's an AV Club review. Most of them are pretty solid too. Are they yeah. also positive? Well, that's fair. I mean, who knew the fucking dude that made like old school and the hangover movies could make like a fucking serious, like indie fucking comic book movie. Is that what, is that what his credits are? That, that's right. eh? like he did do the hangover yeah. movies. That's fucked up. Huh, but I mean, it's all, it's all based. All the reviews I've seen have been like based very heavily around Joaquin Phoenix's performance, which is not surprising because he's yeah. a fucking like journeyman actor, like astounding yeah. actor. So. Yeah, he looks uh, looks like he's really committed to the role too. Which, given his usual mental state, is probably worrisome. But you know, yeah. Well, there you go. I don't know. I'm curious. Like, I'm still curious to see the movie. Like, it looks. I thought the trailer looked good. Like, I don't know if it looks like a good Joker movie, but it looks like a good movie. Yeah. So we've talked enough about the know. trailers. I just wanted to say that, like, yeah, there's there's actual like critical hype behind this movie now. So our listeners will know that you're going to get every bit of news about this Amazon Prime Lord of the Rings series. Uh, There were actually a couple panels on it last week at Dragon Con. They've basically just announced a new casting for it and it's uh will poulter who was the one of the lead guys in bandersnatch he also played one of the lead characters in the old uh, well not old the like 10 15 year old or whatever narnia movies and i as soon as i saw him i was like yeah that looks like a young hugo weaving so i'm just assuming that they're gonna have him playing like a young elrond or something like that or his twin brother elros is that oh wait he has a twin yeah I'm outside my wheelhouse here. Very <laughs> far outside my wheelhouse so, here. So. But yeah, I mean, he's definitely got like a sort of unusual look that looks kind of elvish. So I think that he will fit right in with that world. I mean, there was a lot of talk this past weekend at Dragon Con about like what this series could and couldn't be. Like a couple of our friends, uh, well, Rebecca and Kirsten that you met last year at yeah. a Dragon Con, who I'd still like to have on the podcast at some point. And I discussed this with them at Dragon Con and they both said they'd be up for it because... You know, they were sort of there at the nascent uh, Lord of the Rings movie fandom time. They both work for the Wondering.net and like they've been at parties and Oscar ceremonies and stuff like that with like Peter Jackson and all the stars of these movies and shit. So they've got lots of cool stories to tell. So someday. Yeah, we should uh, definitely get those guys on the podcast and do that because that would be, you know, listeners that might want to listen. <laughs> yes, exactly. To this. To this. Um, whatever that we're doing yes and yeah so they did a panel talking about like here's what we know and what we kind of don't know about this series that's coming up and it was that room was totally full they were turning people away from it nice was that the panel alicia was on no alicia was on a panel um which was also i don't know if they i think they turned people away from it the room was pretty full anyways alicia was on a panel my wife for our listeners that might not have heard her on the podcast before was on a panel about the Tolkien biopic that came out earlier this year oh, right. uh, and sort of uh, the different themes and stuff that were explored in that movie. And uh, she was sort of the one humbug on the panel and being like, yeah, it was fine, but really not very historically accurate. Like they took a lot of liberties with uh, a lot of the, a lot of the story, which I mean, it's Hollywood, they're going to do that, but there always has to be somebody yeah. that's like, okay, Yes, it makes a good story, but this is not actually how shit went down, et cetera, et cetera. And they really like sensationalized his time in World War One and how that how they were trying to frame that influencing uh, his creation of Middle Earth and the stories and everything. But anyways, let's see. This is kind of non news, but Sony appears to be fucking sticking to its guns so far on this Spider-Man thing. Uh, they're basically saying that they they're pretty confident that they're going to be okay with their like shared spider universe 
bullshit. And okay, let's see how that fucking goes for you. Yeah, it went real well yeah. last time. Went real well last time. You know, like were they not there? Like, are these different <laughs> people than who was there last time? We're I think just, they've like, just shut out the Jamie Fox thing. Uh, like, god damn it. I don't want to live through another one of those. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to deal with that. We had good Spider-Man. Now we got to do this shit again. Like, I got to do this shit again. Why don't you just tell me Joel Schumacher is directing the next Batman movie. Matt Reeves is left. And we're just, like, into Nipplegate again. Like, we're just that. Yeah. We're back into that shit. Like, fuck this. Fuck you, Sony. <laughs> I agree. Let's see. Because this is uh, sort of a slow news week, there were a couple things I wouldn't normally bring up, but that were still cool enough that I thought I'd bring up. There is a almost 5,000 piece Lego Star Destroyer model that uh, was announced this week. So it's uh, sort of similar to that Ultimate Collector Series Millennium Falcon that they released a couple years ago. I guess it's um, sort of similar scale to that. But yeah, so it's like 1,500 pieces larger than the last version of a Star Destroyer that they made. Yeah. Now, how big does it... like? Uh, that's what she said. What is the actual demand? I'll take a phrasing <laughs> joke early in the podcast. You know, if we can uh, get does this? I don't know if this article has dimensions or not, but it looks real big. Wait, Jesus! We gotta. We gotta <laughs> it is some forty-three inches long. So that's Fuck, yeah, why three I and mean, a half feet long? This is coming from a dude who wants a three-foot fucking <laughs> unicorn. So I don't. You know what? I don't. I'm out. I'm out. It's cool. Star Wars. You guys do your thing. That's crazy to me, though. Like, what do you what do you do with a three fucking foot? Yeah, Seven hundred dollar Lego it's set made out of that Lego. is three and a half feet long. Oh my god! Like that's oh that's the god. centerpiece that's of your funny. living room at that point, right? Like that is what you put on your coffee table, and are like, or like your your head your runner behind your couch or whatever, and is like, yep, this is the discussion piece. This is what ties the room together in the world. In the words of the Big Lebowski. Yeah. Yeah, that rug really tied the room together. <laughs> the Star Destroyer is going to... 4,784-piece Star Destroyer, Lego Star Destroyer, really tied the room together until my <laughs> dogs fucking together. knocked it over, and then I... I had to rebuild like, it. Yeah. <laughs> I fucking cried for two hours and then had to rebuild it. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. This one, uh, I've not read these series, but I've heard lots of good things about them. Ursula Kayla Gwynn's uh, Earthsea series uh, is going to be presumably made into a tv series so i guess this is just another of those like you know what's going to be the next game of thrones kind of things that people are just going to start throwing money at until something kind of catches and actually does become the next game of thrones yeah so it's it's a big fantasy epic uh, again i don't know a lot about it except that, that there are dragons involved yeah do they not think that, like, the general public as a whole, like, that the temperature of the room post Game of Thrones, maybe, like, maybe don't do Game of Thrones right after Game of Thrones, just did whatever <laughs> so, people want to have been complaining about? I don't want to get into it again. <laughs> I know we, this is the same thing I've done four times. We start talking about Game of Thrones, and I'm like, let's not get into the season eight thing, but like, there was a panel at DragonCon that was like uh, basically a postmortem of Game of Thrones season eight. And uh, Alicia and I went to it just to bathe in the tears. Because yeah, like right. yeah, because like the two of us were more or less happy with it, and most of the people I've spoken to about it, most of our friends that have watched, were also, with the exception of Paul, who is fucking just gonna take that, that grudge to his grave. Apparently, uh, we're we're mostly happy with it, and so I got up at one point, like, and th- this is the thing: when you're putting together a panel for a con, right? You want to have a mix of opinions. They had a mix of people that hated it to varying degrees. Yeah. 
Like you should get at least one person up there that was generally happy with it. And it's not that hard to find somebody that is generally happy with that season of television. Not if you're going out of your way to find people who fucking hated it though. You know what I mean? Like if you're yeah, yeah like the general thesis you're operating under is that this is dog shit. Who am I going to come and find to talk on my panel? Yeah. You can find a bunch of people who thought it was dog shit. Well, no, that was, I got up at one point. That was, I got up and had a question. Granted, this was a later in the evening panel. I had a few drinks already and uh, well, said, and that know, always goes well for this group. Just yeah. so we're clear. <laughs> and I said, unpopular opinion me and most of the people i've spoken to are happy with this season with the panel's permission can we like take a temperature in the room and see like who here was you know i know you guys obviously didn't really enjoy it can we take a temperature of the room and see like who in the room was generally okay with season eight and about like a third of the people put up their fucking hands and then yeah. the panel was just like okay well whatever <laughs> and i was just like yeah we're gonna keep bitching yeah. that's basically, <laughs> basically. Yeah, like, obviously. yeah i mean in between like you know you could tell that there was shit in there that they liked but that there was a couple of things for each of them that they were just really latched onto. yeah they couldn't fucking get over i usually find those couple things are generally daenerys targaryen are usually yes. the, the most the, the biggest complaint if uh, i'd had like spot. if i'd had one or two more drinks i probably would have gotten up gone up and said like all right what i'm getting here is that most of the people in this room have named a pet or child daenerys or khaleesi god damn it that is exactly what i would have done i would have <laughs> i would have gotten up and been like hey so i just want to take a poll of the room after tim has taken his poll of the room yeah I'm out of those I mean, that didn't no. like the season. Yeah. How many of you named your kid after a character in the show, <laughs> specifically Daenerys? Yeah. And when all those hands shoot up, you'd be like, well, yeah, that's why you don't name your fucking kid after a character before the story's done. You know what I yeah. mean? Because they could turn out to be basically Hitler. Yeah. And guess what happened? Yeah. She massacred a whole town. So. Indeed. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, yeah. But yeah, so we're sick with Kayla Gwynn's Earthsea is getting a TV series at some point in the future. And the very last thing that I have, also Star Wars related, but this one was just kind of a fun story that we've talked a little bit about the sort of Star Wars Battlefront loot box controversy and everything. Yes. So a comment from EA Electronic Arts about that controversy sort of in the heat of it in like 2017 has now been recognized as the Guinness World Record holder for the most downvoted Reddit comment of all time. Oh, that's awesome. With something like well well over 600,000 downvotes. I mean, EA is hated by the internet. By and large, <laughs> and the fact that Reddit is basically the internet's hive mind at this point, that doesn't surprise me at all. But that's awesome and good, and fuck EA also, like <laughs> yeah. fuck EA because yeah. they suck real bad, like real bad. Yeah, like six hundred six hundred eighty three thousand like downvotes because it was like somebody from their customer relation team trying to like justify why you had to like pay to unlock like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader as characters. What's so funny is that the, the, the loot box controversy for that game was hilarious because what ended up happening is the game sold nothing and they basically gave it away. Like within a couple of weeks of it being out, it was available on both Xbox Live and PlayStation Network Store or whatever for like super discounted, like 80% like off bucks. or something. Yeah. yeah, like they were selling it off with like the full DLC pack with like for 20 bucks within like a month of yeah. it being out. Just to try and do damage control. Yeah, because the game took a shit kicking. Like I think it was a free game on PlayStation Plus at one point, sometime in the interim as well. Because I played it, it's not terrible. Like I just I wouldn't pay. I would never have done a loot box thing anyway. Because like I don't fucking care about Star Wars that much to be like I need my stormtrooper to have a specifically cool helmet on. Yeah, 
the stormtrooper's gonna get shot in the fucking face anyway. I don't care what helmet he's got on. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, they did have to do a lot of. They took a shit kicking in the market. Let's just put it that way mm-hmm. uh, for what they did, as rightfully so, deservedly so. Yeah. yeah, rightfully so. Like they deserve to take that shit kicking because it was a fucking stupid plan to begin with. And <laughs> yeah, now they've got like the Senate coming after them for loot box bullshit. Oh yeah, another distraction in that room. Yeah. So, but that was all the news that I came up with this week. Uh, do you have anything I missed, Mark? Tool was number one on the Billboard charts this week. <laughs> Just the salt from the Taylor Swift and Lana Del Rey fans was enough to get me through this week. Like that was <laughs> that was the big thing. This, but like especially with like the sixteen-year-olds being like, "Who's Tool?" Like I don't understand what's going on. I was like, "Yeah, that's fine. I'm cool with that. That's exactly the response I yeah. want, and I'm fine with it." See, a funny thing is, like if this album came out. 10 years ago it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere near because at that point tool fans were all pirating music yeah and now like tool fans are like oh i i've you know success i'm old enough now and you know i make i can, make I can enough afford a 40 that, yeah. yeah that i can pay it for this album or like or you know stream it legally on spotify or something like that and yep <laughs> yep Absolutely. I know because the this is the well, I mean it leaked ahead of time, but like the other the last one, ten thousand days leaked like really early because two thousand and six. That's how far back it is, right, right? right? Like that was the era of the leak. Like we were getting albums. Like there were some albums we were getting like months ahead of time. Yeah, and I think ten thousand days was like one of those ones that came out like a solid month before it was released. So mm-hmm. uh, the fact that this one stayed out under wraps as long as it did is actually pretty impressive. But yeah. at the same time. Yeah, number one on Billboard. It just goes to show it's not all Pop Princess bullshit sometimes. <laughs> Fair enough. Not that there's anything wrong with Pop Princess bullshit. I just want to... I love me some Taylor Swift. Hey, like the Taylor album is pretty good. I'm not going to lie. And the Lana album is excellent. But, uh, I mean, you can't stop the Tool Army, like, especially after 13 years. Yeah. That was just... Yeah. Those poor kids were like expecting that to not happen. Mm. <laughs> I've, mm. I've, I've listened to Calm Down and watched the video for it a bunch of fucking times. Taylor Swift well, I've watched knows, the video. knows how to write Absolutely. some hot, some fucking hooky shit. Yep. So Still prettier than Maynard too, so there's that. There is that. Uh, all right. Well, then we can move on to our Geek of the Week. I love Lonely Stings. I know you They're do. You get three weeks in a row of Lonely Stings. I know. It's, it's the amazing. most wonderful time of Mark's year. Yeah, basically. Because we're also going to Christmas and I hate that <laughs> so. This is where we discuss the nerdiest things that we've done in the past week or so. So what has that been for you, Mark? Well, we talked about the Super Nintendo stuff and we were talking about those Super Nintendo games last week. So I played through Super Mario World basically yesterday and today. And it was fun. And I should do that more often because just sitting down and playing a video game mindlessly is kind of nice. And a game that you can just like sit down and just play through in a couple of hours kind of thing. Yeah, I, it was funny because like I, I was I swear I was like having Bluetooth lag or something with the controller because I was like, this thing's not working right. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe I'm just old. My reaction times are fucked up. That's also possible. But yeah, I was I was having a harder time with this than I did the last couple times I played it. So <laughs> fair enough. I don't know. The up button on that, uh, the D-pad on the Pro Controller just was not working for me. Like, just not agreeing with me. Yeah, so. if I do start playing some of those old, like, Nintendo hard games, I probably will need to get, like, a Pro Controller rather than just using yeah. the, the little the Joy-Cons. The lack of D-pad on the Joy-Cons is a real kicker when it comes to, mm-hmm. like, the, the 8 and 16-bit era stuff. So right, that's right. why I kind of use my Pro Controller. I might switch to my... I have one of those 8-bit dough ones that actually connects as a Pro Controller to a Switch. I should set it back up because I can... that actually feels more like an SNES controller. Maybe it'll be a little bit more responsive. Yeah. I've never used the D-pad regularly on the Pro Controller before because I there's not really been that kind of game on the Switch that I played with it. Mm-hmm. So 
usually it's just Mario and Zelda that I played on my Switch. Yeah. And those are stick games. So. Nice. Yeah, there was a booth at Dragon Con in the vendor hall that uh, were basically, that I don't think had been there before. They were selling like custom painted, uh, like pro controllers, like controllers for other systems too, but like Nintendo, yeah. like pro controllers, uh, Joy-Con, stuff like that. Some of them were really nice. We grabbed their card. Like they... You know, even just as like show pieces kind of thing or like display pieces, but they yeah. they were apparently like painted and then like you know done like with like a clear coat or something like that, so you don't have to yep. worry about fucking up the paint job. Yep. So I've seen custom controllers that are really nice uh, done well. I mean, like Microsoft has its own like custom controller creation mm-hmm. system like built right into Xbox Store now, so you can just like have whatever shell coloring you want in whatever combination you want with whatever trigger slash button like face button colors. Like you can just do all kinds of, excuse me, wacky stuff Yeah. to the Xbox controller. It's nice to see. I mean, even if it is a third-party thing, to see Nintendo kind of getting in there, because yeah. all the Switch stuff's just pretty much, I mean, the Joy-Cons are colorful, but everything else is like black, 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 and gray. Yeah, and so. have, I don't, have they released any, like, special consoles or anything like that for Switch, like they have with some of the older systems, like with, like, Zelda versions, or... You get like special Joy Cons with oh, them more yeah. than anything. Like when Mario Odyssey came out, I think Mario Odyssey had two Mario Red Joy Cons. Oh, okay. And I believe, oh man, I want to call it Splatoon, I think, had like mm. yellow and pink ones or something like that. Like the odd one has had special Joy Cons attached to it, but they haven't done like a system, I don't think, that is like, like the way your Wii U is embossed with all the Zelda shit. Yeah, yeah. Like has the Triforce like runes on it and stuff. That hasn't really happened yeah. with the Switch yet. So. It happens on the other two decks constantly, so I'm, I don't know why Nintendo hasn't gone in on it yet, but I, maybe they're just happy with the Joy-Con customization. You don't want to be fucking with the Switch main unit too much, because you got to slide it into the dock, in theory. So, yeah, I don't know. Putting extra shit on a, a Switch, maybe not the best idea. Fair enough. Plus, it'll fuck up the heating, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. cover those vents up, bad idea. Yeah. Well, for my part, yes, my Geek of the Week was definitely attending Dragon Con 2019 last weekend. You know, as our listeners that have been listening for a year or more will know, we had the whole crew together, Christy, Mark, and I all attended Dragon Con together last year. But this year, just Alicia and I together, we didn't have any house guests this year. Uh, I mean, we definitely have friends that we meet up with at the con and that sort of thing. So as I've talked about on the podcast, Alicia and I were doing these Ring Wraith costumes. We ended up with a group of like five people total. We wore them to the Evening at Bree, the High Fantasy tracks, like a uh, little evening dance party kind of thing and costume contest. And we came in second place in the group category to a group that some of our friends were in that was like all 15 of the Valar, which are like the demigods of Middle Earth. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was like, we knew that we were not going to beat them because their fucking costumes are outstanding and there was 15 of them. So, yeah. <laughs> crazy yeah but uh we still got a lot of love a lot of people want to take our pictures and stuff one of the members of our group was able to get us wristbands to march in the dragon con parade on saturday morning it was the first time we'd done that it was hot as balls in those fucking all black costumes but it was super fun because i had a little like sound uh rig rigged into my costume so i could get up in like little kids faces and i had like about seven or eight different like ring race screams programmed into it and could like freak them out and there were some adults that were getting freaked out and shit too so that was a blast and a lot of people got good pictures of us in the parade and stuff as well nice. on sunday buddy paul and i did bill and ted cosplay that was a lot of fun we went to the doctor who ball and partied and hung out with some other time travelers and so that was fun i got 
Yeah, I mean, I could go on for hours and hours. There was a really good group of uh, comic book creators, which sort of ties into our meat of the episode this week that I uh, got to, you know, sort of interact with and say thank you for all the stories that they've done that I've enjoyed over the years and get stuff signed. Like any of our comic book reading listeners would know names like Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis and Marv Wolfman and uh, Jai Lee, who actually did the illustration for the badges this year. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so I got. It's cool that he's working again. I haven't heard from him in ages. Like, what's what's he been doing? I don't. I think he's. I think he's mostly doing cover art. I don't think he's doing much in the way of interior art. I think he's mostly doing covers. And right now, uh, Uh, I I know DC and Marvel are both doing a ton of variant covers right now. Like, basically every book has a variant. And so I I think he's doing a lot of those variant covers and stuff. Hey, if you can get like cover, just like strictly cover work, that's the fucking like the plumbest position you have. You can get yeah. as an illustrator at yeah. DC or Marvel right now. Is like those guys make the money. Yeah, and then um, who else? Uh, Colleen Doran, who did a bunch of the illustrations oh, nice. on Neil Gaiman's Sandman run, and a lot of other Vertigo-y stuff, and some like Wonder Woman stuff like that as well. So, yeah, a lot of cool stuff. And like I said, I mean, I could probably do a whole episode just on the shit that I did at Dragon Con, but I don't want to make Mark too jealous. Yeah, I'm a little jealous, even just hearing what you've <laughs> told me already. So. Uh, I'm, I'm very disappointed I didn't get to go this year, but, uh, you know, we'll go again. Yes. There's always, um, there'll be Fan Expo next year to do while you guys are up here, too. Mm-hmm. So there is that. We'll start getting Yeah, some, because uh, they've offset it. From, cons. Yeah, they've offset yeah. it from Dragon Con now, so that'll be the week before uh, Labor Day yeah. weekend, probably, if they do it like they did this year, uh, which is well, nice. It's been the last means. couple of years. It's, uh, yeah, it would mean we could get to do both if we wanted to, or you guys at least could do both. Yeah. Like we could do it up here as Dance Robot Dance Fan Expo, and then if we can get all of us to go, then great. But yeah, at least yeah, it's not the same weekend anymore, right? Like yeah. Not, uh, yeah, which means that, that they're not, battle. yeah, and they're not fighting for the same guests and everything as well. And so I guarantee you that's why that happened. Cause I, like, I know the Toronto guys were like, we got Friday and Saturday or something like that. Yeah. Sometimes, like they were just crossing over all the time. And it was like, yeah. There is definitely yeah. people that would do like two days in one, two days in the other and stuff like that. Yeah. And I don't know what the pull is at Fan Expo, but Dragon Con seems to be holding steady in like the mid 80,000s. We're seeing, we're well over 100,000, yeah. I think, okay. a year. We're walking through Fan Expo now. Toronto's a big town, especially yeah. when you start drawing in all the, you know what I mean? Like all the suburbs and shit right. on both sides, plus Hamilton and Niagara and stuff. There's a lot of people that end up at Fan Expo yeah. every year. And there's, I mean, like Toronto, well, uh, there's a lot of people that travel from out of town and even from out of country yeah. for Dragon Con, just because there's not really another like fan run con like it that's kind of like mm-hmm. has the the 24-7, like the nightlife and everything that, uh, that Dragon Con does. And I think that's a big draw for a lot of the celebrity folks as well. Because a lot of them, like Benedict Wong, I think a couple of years ago, and yeah. uh, was was just or last year was just fucking like walking around, partying with people, yeah. and so was Peter Capaldi and Nick Frost was kind of wandering yeah. around last year. Yeah, my guys, <laughs> some per- certain points of view. Yeah, uh, no, I, like, I, like again, now as a vet of both cons, like having done a couple of different cons, but like the big ones being Fan Expo and Dragon Con. If I had to pick between the two, I'd be in Atlanta every time. Yeah, because it was way more fun like just with the nightlife and like it's just a party atmosphere Mm -hmm. that is also nerdy whereas cons more like fan expo feels more like a formal like properly professionally organized well occasionally professionally organized (laughs) con yeah then like dragon con is really cool and really organized i'm not saying it's not done properly but like you can tell the one's very corporate and like dragon con is not very corporate and it's a much cooler feeling environment because of that yeah 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 so that's that we can move on to our Meat of the episode, Metagene Meat. 
I was going to go four color me, but I think we've used that one we before, have, right? We've used four color yeah, me before. I'm sure, I'm sure we've used that one before. <laughs> That's probably um, why it came to me. Yep. So as Mark and I are wont to do, I think this is maybe the fourth time or something like that we've done this over the years. Oh, when Jesus. we when we find the two of ourselves uh, alone together, uh, we touch each other. No, we uh, talk about comic wait, books. Wait, wait, God damn it, Tim. <laughs> That's not supposed to be public information. <laughs> Blake, 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 don't write that into a story, yeah, I please. Don't need that. I don't need that fan fiction. Yeah. God damn it. We're still having Stop. nightmares from the last one yeah yeah <laughs> still pretty traumatized can't sleep more than two three hours at a night so <laughs> so yes as mark and i are uh, are want to do we are going to uh rant about comic books and what is probably going to happen is this is going to be another episode where i'll recommend a bunch of dc comics because that's like 90 percent of what i've read over the years mark will recommend a bunch of like some marvel and some fucked up vertigo type books but this time we're gonna do it <laughs> yeah I had a plan to do like all Warren Ellis, every story <laughs> from every decade would be Warren Ellis, but I couldn't hit the 80s. So oh. I was like, well, fuck that plan. I do have a recommendation for Warren Ellis from every other one, though, that okay. I will get to. So there you so go. this time we're going to do it with a little bit of a different twist. So for the most part, I think it's fair to say that Mark and I, the bulk of what we've read has been from the 1980s on. I think that's fair. Like I've read a little bit back into like the sixties and seventies and like, uh, you know, some like really early keys and stuff like that, just to say that I've been able to read like, you know, the first Batman, the super first Superman, you know, some of those key stories kind of thing. But, uh, most of what I've read is like basically 80, 81 on. And that's probably pretty similar for you as well. Like I've gone back, I did a project at one point where I was doing research for a paper I was writing in university and kind of forced myself to go back and read probably the first four years of every Marvel comic kind of okay. thing. So like go like go I went through the sixties and like where Stan launched all these books and just read everything for the first twenty four issues approximately. It was a dodgy yeah. idea. <laughs> but it gave me a nice understanding of how that universe worked. And we're gonna kinda of talk about that because one of my suggestions, if it's not a repeat of one that I've already done. But now I'm thinking it might be. I should have gone back and looked at my old <laughs> list, but it's, it's all right. 200 episodes ago or whatever. Yeah, I exactly. I, went, I looked it up. Like last time we did this, we just did like limited series. Mm. And then, but before that, the last time we did this was almost 100 episodes ago. So damn okay. near two years ago. Like it was episode 69, dudes. Was the, oh, awesome. Yeah. Has it been that long? Well, I mean, obviously we've been alone on episodes together since then, but like it feels like that was. Not that long ago, yeah. But like two years, eh? Yeah, yeah. The last yeah. one was like hundred episode one hundred something was was us just doing more of the limited series rather than like okay. uh, you know actual like main runs kind of thing. So yeah, nice. Okay, but yeah. So the twist this time is that I challenged Mark and myself to come up with one sort of run from each of the decades that we've sort of been active readers in. So one storyline from the eighties, or one run from the eighties, one from the nineties. One from the 2000s and one from this decade, the teens. Uh, so we'll have four each. And let's actually, before we get into that, I looked back at our previous notes for these. And one thing that we did that I want to do, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, is uh, before we get into this, is there something right now that you're reading or have recently re- read that you would recommend sort of separate from what we're covering tonight? I just finished reading. I just caught up to Batman. Yeah. Because we were talking about that. So that's the last thing I finished reading. Let me let me check my, my comic reader see. Yeah, so I'm caught up to the Tom King now. I wish I hadn't read it because I was like, damn it, now yeah, I want to get to the yeah. end. <laughs> like, I want the end kind of thing to happen. I know we're kind of within a couple of issues. It's two that. issues a month, so you'll you'll get it oh, uh, yeah. before too long. What I did, I grabbed, I've been just grabbing random stuff lately. So, like, I'm still reading Powers of X and House of X. And I've been reading stuff for this. Like, I was reading 
this week more mm-hmm. this stuff. But I grabbed some random like weird licensed crossover shit just because the franchises were of interest to me. But there was a Ghostbusters Transformers mm. crossover. I remember we talked about that. And we were like, yeah, that's got Mark's fucking name on it. Yeah, and I I did download it and read it. It was fucking not great, like not great at all. <laughs> but like I still have the toy, so I mean that's something. And then there was a like an old Star Trek story called the Q Conflict that like wrapped all the generations together and had them dealing with like the metrons like the q and the metrons and like Mm. the what the fuck like that kind of stuff it was a terrible terrible story (laughs) it was basically fan fiction in comic book form but i did read it so there's that so it can one one i wanted to point out though there's a series that started at idw called transformers 84 and i don't know if you've seen it anywhere but if you see it at the comic store pick it up and just flip through it because it's got like super modern style like the guy who's drawing it it really good Transformers 84. Transformers 84. Okay. But what he does, they have it colored in the old Marvel Comics style. So it's got that real half tony kind of color to it. Nice. And I'm just like totally digging on the way the art's just reproduced and put on the page because of it's got that, it, like it makes me nostalgic for those old, kind of awful Marvel Transformers comics that I read growing <laughs> up. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So for my part, uh, in terms of something recently I've been reading, right now, Scott Snyder is writing Justice League. And I'll be completely honest, his run overall has been hit or miss, but what's happening right now is really cool. Uh, so Scott Steiner mm-hmm. is writing it, and uh, Jorge Jimenez is is doing the art. And right now the storyline is uh, Doom War. It's basically like a Legion of Doom versus a Justice League story. But right now they're basically all split up they in time. Did you get sued for that? What? Doom War? Doom War. Doom War is like a, it's an old 80s Marvel crossover. Oh. Okay. Yeah, it was Doom War, yeah. But right now, what's happening in the last couple of issues, spoiler alert for anybody that is not caught up on it, you know, jump ahead. But this is the storyline where they're bringing back the classic Justice Society. So those old, oh. like, World War II, like, 40s, the old original, like, Golden Age Flash, Golden Age Green Lantern, Our Man, Hawkman, Adam, Wildcat, Starman. Oh, so Justice Society's back finally yeah. after New 52, because they've been kind of missing, right? Like, most of those characters have been kind of MI. There was this Earth 2 story that was basically a, a separate Earth, where they did, like, updated versions of them, like modern takes on those characters, okay. but that has been gone for a few years now, so this is, like, those classic original versions of the Justice Society are coming back into continuity now, which I'm fucking okay. super here for. I is Jeff Johns writing it because that's like no I would Scott, really like if he was Scott Snyder's writing it and there's no announcement yet in terms of an ongoing series related to this. Oh, okay, that's what I meant, yeah. like an ongoing. Yeah, so I, I can't imagine that they won't do something with those characters and bring them back into modern continuity. Um, but I mean, Jeff Johns has his fucking hands full with finishing Doomsday Clock, and he's got another couple of uh, projects uh, cooking right now. One of which I'll talk about later that uh, are kind of keeping his plate pretty full. But yeah, if we did get a fucking justice society story or main book back i'd be all about that i can't believe they've gone this long without having one that was a really popular book for a couple years oh like, yeah really popular book like during that jeff johns run and stuff like even i was reading it yeah which, that was one of the ones i recommended that, on one of our past episodes i think the yeah. first time that we did this yeah that's a that's a deep art on it and it was fucking phenomenal and yeah, like it's kind of a deep DC cut. Like you got to kind of know like your DC shit yeah. to get into that. Like I had to do a lot of research when I was reading it. Like go back, That's like right up my fucking alley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, those are characters. Like if it's not inside the Bat Family, I'm real like yeah, spotty. Yeah, spotty on a lot of the DC stuff. Like the two big guys, Superman and Batman, I know like the most about probably. But like when you start getting outside that, especially characters like mm-hmm. that Justice Society, 
man, those are all kind of like mythology to me at this point. Like it's all just like characters that existed in the past that yeah. we have new analogs to or whatever. But I loved that Justice Society story that Jeff Johns wrote. Yeah. That was one of my favorite runs. Nice. So with that, let's get into sort of the main topic here, which is uh, our recommended stories by decades. So starting with the 80s, Mark, what are you going to recommend to our listeners for the 80s? Well, this is something that probably won't come as a huge surprise to most of our listeners because we did. there was a conversation that was happened on our Facebook page at one point after we did another comic book episode. I'm not sure exactly which one, where Matthew Fab and I were talking about Miracle Man. Mm. And this is the perfect opportunity for me to bring up Miracle Man because it's an 80s comic. So if you haven't read Miracle Man, it's a... It's an Alan Moore book that predates Watchmen. And Miracle Man is essentially Shazam, like the Captain Marvel from DC, just kind of moved forward in time. So he's like an adult now, like he's not the kid anymore. So when he turns into Miracle Man or turns back from Miracle Man, he's just a regular dude. Yeah. Yeah, he's an adult. And at the beginning of the story, you kind of brought in, he's amnesiac. He doesn't remember the magic word to call him, like to turn himself into Miracle Man anymore. So it's like this huge kind of struggle with him thinking he's a superhero but not really being sure about it and it's all alan moore like inside your head kind of yeah. thing but it's a very big deconstruction and it's the first time i remember a huge deconstruction of that superhero idea happening anywhere really like that i read when what were the years on that book this like i said it predates Watchmen and it's Dark gotta Man. be like early 80s then, yeah. 83 like it's 81 82 83 like somewhere in there i actually have the issues on my ipad again i could knock everything over yeah um because i was flipping through them this week 82 yeah so yeah 82 is the first one and then uh gaiman picked it up later on so it starts with alan moore and then there's all kinds of crazy stuff like the legal story of miracle man is something that we like at some point we if we do a whole episode on it well there's a straight up documentary on the i think on the legal issues surrounding it but like long story short the rights were sold from the uk publisher to the american publisher who went defunct and then were kind of sold to todd mcfarland but didn't actually get sold to Todd McFarlane and ended up having reverted back to the illustrator the entire time. Like he owned the rights. So when mm-hmm. everybody got together and figured it out, Marvel basically bought the rights and now are reprinting the books. So a character that was never involved with Marvel ever, ever, except for the name getting sued into oblivion when they tried to bring it over to the US and they had to be called Miracle Man mm-hmm. over here is now owned by Marvel. And like I know they had put a company together with Neil Gaiman to like shepherd the character back to prominence kind of thing like bring him back and there have been some stuff but i think the last couple things have been held up like i haven't seen anything new happening in the last couple years but it is a book like i feel because of all that legal shit kind of got lost in the conversation yeah when watchmen and like because watchmen and dark knight get brought up ad nauseum when you talk about like the golden age or like the the dawning of the modern age of comics because they're easy to find and they're constantly reprinted and yeah, exactly. And the problem is that, like, I think a lot of those themes that came from those two books, they all kind of aped from Miracle Man. I mean, granted, Watchmen is basically Alan Moore just aping himself or, like, maybe developing that idea further. Yeah. But I think a lot of the ideas of the Superman run amok that, like, really permeate his work really started in Miracle Man. And it being lost to time or legal bullshit has kind of taken it out of the conversation. Where I feel like if you go back and read it, I can imagine it was so influential on the people reading at that point that like it's kind of crazy it is yeah it's definitely a a book that a lot of uh modern writers will cite as an influence yeah so it's one of my favorites because of that like it's just like the first time alan moore really started doing this like deconstructing these myths 
kind of idea mm-hmm. that he's basically built his career on. And it's a really good story. Like Miracle Man ends up like finding his kid Miracle Man and he had to fight with Kid Miracle Man or he has to fight with Kid Miracle Man because Kid Miracle Man's gone completely insane. And they have this huge epic battle and eventually he decides he has to like take over the world and stuff like that and just like rule as a benevolent god. So it's kind of like really going down the rabbit hole of what may actually happen in a case like that, like where you have that one superman kind of thing on your planet so basically what's probably going to happen in like season two of the boys yeah basically <laughs> yeah some except maybe this is more benevolent like he's not he doesn't antagonize anybody he doesn't okay. kill anybody unless he absolutely has to i assume what's going to happen with homelander is going to be more like irredeemable yeah or like shit what was the the marvel justice league thing that they always did like with superion i think was the the superman analog oh. i can't remember the name of the book it's a team. I have to look it up. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but yeah, so Miracle Man, if you haven't read it, it's definitely something I think now that it's more easy to grab in reprints or you can go grab it on Comixology, I think now you should definitely do that because... Don't go hunting for the initial, original issues on that because they're oh my God, stupid expensive. Unless yeah, you just want to cry. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, those are extremely hard to come by because that's low, like... Real low print run. Yeah, because they were British comics originally. Like it's from... Uh, I don't even know what the... I can't even remember what the British label is. All the copies I have of it are labeled as a Eclipse like when they got reprinted in the States. Mm-hmm. Like that's all I have around like scans and stuff like that. But yeah, it's one of my favorite comics of all time because cool. I remember going back to it when... Uh, scans became a thing and you could just kind of access stuff mm-hmm. in various ways um i remember somebody telling me i should read miracle man so i went out of my way to do it and i was very happy i did so if you haven't read miracle man or marvel man i don't know how they're printing it now i couldn't tell you i remember it as miracle man because that's what i grew up calling it mm-hmm. so there you go go read miracle man all right my first one is probably i mean the 80s was definitely an era where superheroes were kind of being deconstructed and this mm-hmm. my first one my pick from the 80s is sort of a deconstruction but in a different way so i'm going to recommend uh justice league international the mm-hmm. 87 to 89 run which was written by keith giffen and jam de mateus which are both at dragon con this year kevin mcguire who is also a dragon con this year and uh, oh, like, they have like a reunion panel too? yeah they did nice nice they had that, like a jli like bwahaha uh, panel that must have been awesome did you go i couldn't I, so the fucking the comic track is now in the vendor halls and there were mm. like hour-long lines to get into the vendor halls like all day saturday and all day sunday so you like that sucks. yeah so like you would have had to like miss the whole previous slot of panels in order to get in there. So I did get into one, which I'll talk about later on uh, in this, but I, well, I, I can talk about it now. I got into one panel that was on, I think like Monday morning or Monday afternoon, like one of the very last slots. And unfortunately it was almost like there was almost nobody there again because the the comic and pop art track room is just really out of the way like it's near the comic and pop art alley if you remember from last year which was up on like the yep. third or fourth floor of the vendor hall building yeah, which is they really tucked the artists way the fuck out of the way that was that was the one thing about dragon con that bummed me out was like ah, like the actual guys doing like the work that we're all here to kind of yeah you know celebrate are all tucked up in a fucking you know corner yeah i mean it's cool because it's a nice little environment to be in and you could tell they were all having a good time together but yeah it was pretty sparsely popular. Well, there was pretty there's decent traffic up there. It's just a matter of if people want to come just to do like one of those panels and then go back to the main yeah. hotels, like that's a bit of a fucking trek to get out there and everything. So I'm sure, uh, I mean, when I put my feedback on some of the panels this year, I was like, please bring some of these, especially with some of these bigger creators back into the main hotels. Like I understand it's convenient for them because they just need to walk down the hall and they don't have to spend that much time away from their tables. But most of these people are bringing like, 
somebody yeah, with them. Staff. Yeah, they they're bringing yeah. whether it's like you know one of their kids or like a or a friend or their manager or somebody like that or that to come and man their booth when they're not around, kind of thing. So yeah. I mean, you can meet a lot of wives that way too, actually, oddly enough. Yeah. I remember walking by a couple of times and like the first time I had a really good conversation with Catherine Eminen was because I kept walking by Stuart's booth looking to get a review. Right. And she noticed me. She's like, I know you've been here before. And I'm like, I've walked by five times waiting for Stuart. Where is he? <laughs> and she was like, you can panel. just wait. And I was like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was in a panel already. He was doing a signing actually that mm. time. But she's like, you can just wait. And then we ended up shooting, shooting the shit. And that's where I found out before they even printed it that she was doing that Patsy Walker. Oh, nice. Like, a decade ago, like, yeah. that's how far back this goes. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, but this this panel was on. Uh, it was Keith Giffen and Kevin McGuire were both on it, uh, nice. and a couple other guys as well. One of the guys is one of the, I can't remember his name, but he's the guy that has done the bulk, uh, written the bulk of the uh, Rick and Morty comics. Oh, okay. Uh, and another guy that has written a bunch of the recent Archie comics. And the other guy who's kind of an asshole was the guy behind Flaming Carrots. Oh yes, um, I mean I, I. What's his name? Bob. That doesn't uh, doesn't fucking some, matter. Bob something was, I can't remember. He's he's a dick bag. Yeah, he was a he was at a panel at a con I was at, and he was a total dick mm-hmm. too. Like he just wouldn't answer anything properly and yeah. shit. I was like, why are you? He was on his man? phone, like fucking phone, like half the panel, literally, like squinting at it. Like I, if I was a, if I was an artist, I would have been sketching it and been like and giving it to him at the end and be like, this is how fucking stupid you looked up there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyways, yeah, so, and, and a lot, I mean, Keith Giffen is known for writing funny comics about superheroes, and yeah. Ken McGuire drew that book, and so, you know, they talked a lot about this this particular book while they were up there, because um, it's one of the things they're both best known for. So this is basically what what is co- often described as the wahaha era, as in, like, you know, yeah. big belly laugh era of the Justice League, or also sometimes referred to as the Booster Blue era because Booster Gold and Blue Beetle were this sort of like little odd couple within the team that got that were at the center of a lot of the stories and a lot of the jokes and like hijinks and stuff like that. Yeah, because that's also the uh, the one punch run, if I'm not mistaken, it is where yep. Guy Gardner got. You know, yep. cold cock by Batman. Yeah, one of the so. most memorable, uh, memorable and comedic moments from that run is Guy Gardner being his Guy Gardner uh, Green Lantern being his normal fucking obnoxious self, and Batman just having fucking none of it and giving like cold cock him, him right in the fucking face and knocking him, one punch. knocking him right out. One punch yeah. as uh, I think it's Booster who screams it out, but either way, yeah. somebody screams out one punch because he lays him out. Yeah. In one punch. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, it's if I pitch this book to you, it's, you'd say, no fucking way is that going to work. That sounds stupid. Nobody's going to fucking read it. It's this ragtag group of misfit heroes thrown together, and basically chaos ensues. Like, they encounter ridiculous fucking villains. There's some really great, like, proto-meta humor within it. Uh, like I said, on this panel, uh, Keith Given and Kevin McGuire talking about when they were given this story and these characters basically thought that it was going to be the end of both of their careers because of the characters that they'd been given to work with. Basically they couldn't use Superman because uh, Burns man of steel miniseries was using him at the moment. And like they wanted focus to be there. George Perez's wonder woman reboot was happening right around the same time. So they couldn't use her uh, initially. Yeah. Mike Barron was starting his Wally West flash run. So they couldn't have a flash on the team. So it ended up being this weird fucking mix, mostly of like B and C list heroes at different stages, the membership included Batman, Black Canary, Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Captain Marvel, like the 
Shazam, Shazam, what is commonly known now as Shazam, uh, Dr. Fate, a female hero, Dr. Light, instead of the villain, Dr. Light, uh, Guy Gardner, Martian Manhunter, Mr. Miracle, Rocket Red, Fire Ice, Captain Atom, Animal Man, Elongated Man, Metamorpho, Power Girl. And then later, once the book started taking off, they put Wonder Woman on the team. So that's like, right. is this fucking weird, crazy roster? Not all of them were on the team at the same time. Like, uh, you know, they kind of came in and out, but it's just a real weird fucking mix of characters. Yeah, I think the core of that book is the one that I always remember. And I think it's because they were in the Superman book that I remember more. Like I've read more times. Mm. Like that team is kind of what I remember is the Superman as uh, that team. Yeah. But when you're naming all these other ones, I'm like, I remember reading this book and all these extra characters that show up in it. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they all they all work. Like they all have something to do. <laughs> yeah. And there was a time where this book was like really hard. Like I had a, I, I would never have gone for this book at a certain point. But then this thing called Next Wave happened, <laughs> and all of a sudden this book, I was like, wait, Next Wave is just a riff on this. So like, yeah, this is a great run. Um, if you haven't read it, it's so good. This, I, as far as I'm concerned, this is really like the book that set off the trend within the big two, within DC and Marvel, of bringing more humor into some of their mainstream books. Yeah, but you know, coming from like the mid '80s, which were just like super fucking dour. Like that is like the peak grim and gritty kind of time, right? Like that's when you have like Watchmen uh, and Dark Knight Returns yeah. and all that sort of shit coming through. Well. It's peak, well-written, grim and gritty at the very least yeah, in the true. 80s. Because we had a lot of grim and gritty in the 90s. It was even more grim and gritty, but it was all kind of shit. It was more, edg- more edgelordy shit rather than actually yeah. having anything behind it worth saying. Although, shout out to Spawn hitting 300 issues, true. I think, in the next couple of months. Like, that one's still fucking going yeah. crazy. Because I saw J. Scott Campbell posting, like, variant cover art. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. There's still got Spawn just doing a comic every month? Yeah. That's fucking crazy to <laughs> I me. Mean. And the new fucking movie in the works and everything for Spawn. And, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I'll fucking believe that that movie's going to happen when I fucking see it with my own eyes. Because, like, they, he's been talking about that movie since, like, Jesus, before the last Tool album. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, he's been talking about that movie for a fucking <laughs> age. Like, two decades now? Yeah. When did that first one come out? That first one was like bad. Midnight, like, uh, it was like 97 or 98 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, real early CGI in that. Yeah. Right around the time of, like, the first Blade movie, I think. I think it's pre the first Blade movie. I think it predates it. I think it's more like in the Batman and Robin era. Like, the Dark dark Times. Yeah. Blade kind of brought everything back. You know, like, Blade was the start of, like, the good times. Yeah. But. Yeah, I think that was in the bad times. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, this book, because Giffen and DeMatteis and McGuire and the others that worked on it were like, this is fuck, like nobody's going to read this, so let's just fucking have fun with this. So they just wrote what they thought was funny. They like, they basically created a send up of like the premier superhero team in the world. And, you know, this dysfunctional group rather than, I mean, we had had like the. Uh, Justice League Detroit before this, which was its own sort of kind of dysfunction. Yeah. This was just dysfunction for like dysfunction with slapstick kind of thing. And, and it's now widely considered one of the best ever runs of Justice League. It's one of those like seminal works of, of comic book history. And ultimately it brought up the profile of a lot of these characters, like considerably, presumably you'd never would have known like, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, who DC had just recently acquired from Charleston Comics, yeah. wouldn't ever really have ended up with the profile that they've had. Like Blue Beetle's had multiple series. Booster Gold is kind of this like cult favorite character that is now like one of the 
like cornerstone time travel heroes of the DC universe and yeah. shit like that. And they probably would not be where they are now without the series in particular. Now is Ted Cord back? Yes. In Rebirth, okay. basically Ted Cord was at the start of Rebirth. Jaime Reyes is sort of the new Blue Beetle, but he's yes, sort of the protege of Ted Cord. So Ted Cord has okay. had his time in the sun. He's retired as Blue Beetle. He think I think he dons the outfit again like one time during that uh, the last series of Blue Beetle. But Jaime is more or less the Blue Beetle now. So, nice. but yeah, Ted Cord yeah. is back and around, and they this was just kind of uh, it was basically rebirth. Like they just said, okay, now he's back. Okay, yeah. fair. Because him getting shot, like when Max Lord shot him, was like I remember that fucking panel like ruined my night yeah. i was like holy shit they killed blue fucking beat and max lord like max lord who would become one of like the foundational villains of dc for the yeah. next like 20 years originated in this fucking book too, in justice league yeah. international so yeah so this dc history owes a lot to this book and and these creators so that's why it's on my list for the 80s nice so. Uh, so let's get into the 90s now. We've already slagged off the fucking 90s in terms of just being like edgelord time for comics. So what's your 90s pick, Mark? Well, my Warren Ellis 90s <laughs> pick is Transmetropolitan, which is 90s edgelord shit, but actually really, really good <laughs> biting commentary edgelord shit. Like it's edgelord shit with a purpose. So if you have never read Transmetropolitan, get on that. But the other one, now I need to ask you, have we talked about Marvels before? Uh, I don't think so. So I wanted to bring up Marvels as a direct opposition to 90s Edgelord shit. Okay. Because it is the most uplifting. Straight up, yeah. Yeah, straight up like 60s style Marvel story ever. So uh, if you haven't read Marvels, I suggest you do. It's a four-issue miniseries that was written by Kurt Busiek and illustrated by a pre-Kingdom come Alex Ross. This will be the first time. Yeah, and this is the funny part too, because I'm looking at the art. I reread it this week because it's a nice four-issue. Like You can get get through it real Mm. quick. And it's like, man, he hadn't completely locked down the style yet in here. Like, you could still see some of the... I'm still trying to figure out the lockdown of how that style works for comic pages and stuff. Because it's still kind of wonky in certain spots. But, like, it's still, yeah, he's next level fucking good yeah absolutely it's like norman rockwell painting i really wish i really wish he would do more interior art even if it is was on limited series kind of thing and i know he does like i'm I'm talking about like do it for the big two kind of thing because a lot of what he's doing now is creator own kind of stuff and sure okay it's great but on either side too like i'd love to see him do like a nice marvel book at some point again Mm -hmm. because he's never really done he doesn't he's done paintings for marvel covers just as much as he does dc covers now like he basically is just a cover artist and again if you can get that fucking work take it because i would kill for yeah, it yeah we can live off that well man those guys like they're making like they're, they can live off of it you yeah. know what i mean like the the cover guys it's craziness anyway but yeah so the story tells the and like it's funny that we were talking about me having reread all those marvel comics because it retells those early years of the marvel universe like the 60s birth of the marvel universe mm-hmm. from the perspective of a photographer that works for not the daily bugle i think it's the daily something else because it's pre-Daily Bugle, because J.J. Jonah Jameson features as a support character in the first issue, and he's just a beat reporter with Phil Sheldon, as they, I think, at first discover the Human Torch, but not the Johnny Storm Human Torch, the old android Human Torch mm. from the, like, the invaders and stuff like that. And, the, like, the first invasion of Namor into New York. And then, like, what else does he see? Like, he just happens to be at all these huge events, right? The return of Captain America, the formation of the Avengers. He's around for the Fantastic Four's battle with Galactus. He just happens to be there when Spidey, uh, when Gwen Stacy is murdered by the Green Goblin. Yeah. 
So like he sees all these, and that's the kind of arc of the the story. Also the mutants and stuff like that. Like he sees he's there when the X Men kind of show up. Mm-hmm. But at the end, it's this like hopeful story of like, yeah, we've had all these incidents, and there's these super people that we don't know if we can trust or not. But it still has that hopeful '60s like get up and go kind of feeling at the end of it because it's a Marvel book, and that's kind of what Marvel does. Even then, before pre Disney, I guess. Yeah. But it's also kind of cool because it's like it takes like what was. I can't, I'm not even sure, probably a dozen comic books, two or three years of comics and condenses all of that into like a four issue miniseries. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to show that like, yeah, some of the stuff, like the details of those pages or like of those comics may not have held together perfectly well, but like the spine of the story of the Marvel universe that Stan yeah. and like all these the creators spirit of those stories wrote, is yeah, still like works. really holds up super nicely yeah. and like it still reads as like a good compelling story and like even if you're at that distance you're still like ah shit Gwen Stacy's dead like this sucks like that's really fucking yeah. tough so did this end up sort of was this more or less out of continuity or was it sort of considered like this is the new history of the Marvel Universe at least for the period after that I think see it's one of those books and like Marvel doesn't have all these like right, right. hard time stops like DC does where we can like very much say like hey this is pre-crisis yeah, yeah. post-crisis pre-52 post 52 that kind of stuff now rebirth flashpoint like all those kind of milestones we don't really have those in the marvel side i would say it's not anymore because the sliding timeline would indicate that anything in the 60s doesn't fucking count anymore but i think if you're looking at like what the core of these stories are like the launch of the marvel universe and you didn't want to go do what i did and read like 400 issues of fucking garbage series <laughs> comics you know what I mean? with, some of with them are really a lot great. of thought balloons and <laughs> yeah just a lot of shit like some of them are real bad too yeah. this is a nice way to kind of get your feel of like how marvel started um like uh, this is what in my head if i have a headcanon for marvel this is my marvel headcanon so it's sort of marvel an homage marvel. to their legacy kind of thing yeah, yeah. yep nice. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. How can you not read this? You're such an Alex Ross. I do guy. love Alex like, Ross. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is one that wouldn't take me long to read, and I'm sure it's on Marvel Unlimited. So, I'll oh, add yeah, it yeah, to my Marvel absolutely. Unlimited reading list. I, I probably will get to it because kind of what I've been doing when I have been dipping my toes into Marvel the last couple of years is been trying to read the major like event books. And I'm sure that when I get to mid nineties, this will probably be on that list of, of stuff that I'll get to. I don't know, but because it's such a throwback, like, like it's almost like an elseworldsy kind yeah. of thing. They just Marvel doesn't do that kind of stuff. They just kind of like, this is the history of it mm-hmm. kind of thing, but it's so great. It's this beautiful, like emotional story. And like you follow him getting older and like dealing with like, can I protect my family yeah. when like dudes with spider powers are fighting guys on goblin gliders and shit like that, like right outside my window. Yeah. Like, how do I, manage all this, like real life and it's stuff. funny because like the storyline of this seems very parallel to kingdom come because kingdom come has that like every man vehicle character that's the pastor and and yet yeah. the writers are different like it's mark wade on uh, on kingdom come and it's kurt Busiek here and yeah. i'm pretty sure uh so i wonder if that's, not if that's consult on, like did he not work on kingdom come at all or did he just write the four i don't know is that what is that what i got in my head that he wrote the maybe i don't know like and may- maybe maybe i just have this collaboration in my head and that's why i always think kurt Busiek wrote fucking kingdom come and not mark wade although mark wade also like four star tier caliber writer oh, yeah absolutely on that side too so i mean kurt Busiek knows his shit he's a fucking he's been around forever he's written the avengers he's written everybody very well steeped in 616 lore so he he hits all the big emotional beats you want him to hit even to the point where like they're in continuity they showed captain america like in the comic captain america was at reed richard's wedding but like 
he wasn't actually supposed to be there because he hadn't come back to life yet or whatever. Mm. They hadn't waken him up yet. So they put a cardboard cutout of him in the comic, <laughs> like in Marvels, so that it kind of makes sense that he's shown in the original yeah, comic. just to honor him or whatever. That's that's funny. Yeah, well, that is pretty funny. So, like that's That's the kind of stuff. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's Marvel, right? So it's all that intertwined storytelling. It shows you how all these characters interact and stuff like mm-hmm. that, like how Namor and Human Torch, the original Human Torch, again, were like super, you know, they were nemesis at the start and then eventually were working together during the war. And like that intertwined storytelling that we we're so happy with in the MCU. I mean, Marvel's had that in its DNA since the very start of its universe yeah. kind of thing. And going back to this just proves that point to me. It's like, Jesus. Yeah, they've been doing this. They've had that idea of like all these books tying together since the very, very start, even if it was pretty slipshod in some ways. Like they've now kind of streamlined it in this book to kind of make it all sense. And also, this fucking Alex Ross kid can paint, you know? Oh, yeah. So, like, I think he's got a career ahead of him. You know? He's going to go places. Like he's got some, like he's going to go places. <laughs> yeah, this is 1994, Alex Ross, we're talking about yeah. right now. And you can see this still a little wobbly, but you can really see there's some genius like getting ready to happen. Yeah. Like if you look at this and look at Kingdom Come right after, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I see where, yeah. like, what he like, what where that development came from. Nice. So nice, yeah. All right, so my '90s pick is one I'm pretty sure that Mark, you've also read. It is uh, James Robinson and Tony Harris Starman series. Ooh, we're gonna be getting a lot of Tony Harris oh, love yeah? this week. That's pretty nice. awesome. Yeah, man. <laughs> yes, that's all. No, I have read this because fucking Tony Harris is one of my favorite illustrators. Oh, so actually. good. Like he's my my second or third. Like if he had an influence, like a guy that I wanted to be. Yeah. Him and Steve McNiven are the two guys that I'm like that are closest to my style that I'm always trying to aim. Oh, nice. Like that super clean, yeah. like very photo rep style. Yeah. I love like these guys. That, like his stuff's fantastic. We're well, here a lot about in, in this though, I feel like uh, Tony Harris was almost going more impressionistic because how much he uses yeah. shadow and shit like that. Yep. But yeah, so this, uh, this is a comic book that uh, if you haven't read it already, it is a superhero comic. It is set in like main DC continuity, but it strikes an almost vertigo kind of tone. And it's very much an er example of like a postmodern comic story, like again, sort of deconstructing the idea of a superhero. So basically there's this guy, Jack Knight. He's the son of Ted Knight. Ted Knight was the golden age star man that was part of the Justice Society. But Jack is this sort of stereotypical Gen X, like 90s rebel, like wants nothing to do with his father's legacy. Like his dad's basically a boomer and he's like, fuck you guys. You fucked up the world, that all that sort of thing. Don't editorialize it all, Tim. <laughs> Come on, man. No. Uh, he's like this pop culture obsessed, like Kitchmeister, right? Like he wears Hawaiian shirts. He's like one of those kind of guys that like is obsessed with like Godzilla movies, like B-horror movies, shit like that. And absolutely the last kind of person that you would expect to be a superhero but the story starts off and it the motivations are all really really good the story starts off as jack's older brother takes over as starman but very quickly gets killed by one of his dad's old enemies yeah and then this guy goes over after jack as well and jack is basically like fuck i guess i need to like take on this role or be be Starman in order, or at least, you know, defend myself against this guy and then finds himself just thrown into the role essentially and, and into the thick of it. And it just goes on from there. So he ends up with his, one of his father's like cosmic rods, which is basically a rod that can fly and, uh, shoot like starbursts kind of thing and yeah i wish my rods shot starbursts. <laughs> Wait. 
Yeah, that's that's one of those Brody Bruce kind of uh, stories right there. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but this is a, a story. Um, I mean, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I one of the main reasons I'm such a DC guy is because I love the legacy that they have built up over the years and their generational stories. And this is a perfect example of that. It plays really well with DC's legacy characters, long continuity. It brings in and refreshes other old, stale, and relatively forgotten characters, uh, both on the hero and villain side, and also some supporting characters as well, including some of the others that have borne that name Starman over the years. So do you remember that 90s Starman, like Will Payton? Around like, or yeah, like 92, 93 that had like a 25 issue series or something like that that never really went anywhere. That character, you, you remember, came back in this book and like yeah. got treated way better in this book than he ever got treated in his initial title. Yeah, the only reason I knew about that character is because yeah. I read this book. Yeah, this book is one of those like, if you're in my like sphere of comic book reading, you're like in like the weird stuff. Starman is one of those books along with Animal Man that like, and Hellblazer and Swamp Thing that DC always has going for it where Mar- this is one of those things marvel doesn't do a lot mm. of dc does a lot of this kind of stuff and i've always kind of been there for this side of it so that kind of the dark side i guess you could call it better like the vertigo side of the dc universe even proper mm-hmm. i love that shit yeah. um so starman's a book i read yeah it was recommended to me early on and i read very quickly also tony harris yeah, yeah. the yes, fucking fucking yeah. pencils are just Unbelievable. Yeah, his art overall was really good in this book. He, like I said, he plays really well with Shadow in this title in particular. Uh-huh. And he like this is one of those rare opportunities where both of these guys did like there might have been a rare fill in here and there, but on the bulk of this book, eighty one issue run, it went from ninety four to two thousand and one. It was yeah. James Robinson writing it, and it was Tony Harris fucking drawing it. Yeah, this is one of those books too that like even Wizard Magazine used to give props to. They're like, if you're not reading Starman, you're fucking yeah. up. Like you need to be reading this. I remember that's why that's probably why I was reading it, it was because somebody in Wizard Magazine, and I know everybody kind of hates Wizard Magazine in retrospect, but like like everything I knew about comics in the eighties or the nineties was from mm-hmm. Wizard, basically, from the interviews and stuff that were in that magazine. And there was one of those books that they were constantly pimping as like, Yeah, nobody's reading this book, but everybody should be reading this book. Yeah. So like get on it. Very similar to how they like the comics press treated Animal Man when it relaunched at New Fifty Two. Like remember that went nuts. Yeah. It was the same kind of vibe back then for this as that. Yep. And that's the kind of stuff that I will immediately jump into because I love that weird DC shit. Yeah, absolutely. And this... Oh, wait, sorry. I should say the art was uh, primarily from Tony Harris from basically up to like issue 50. And then Peter yeah. Snyberg uh, picked it up for the last like 30 issues or so, which I also remember that being that art being pretty good as well. It, I'm wondering if he left to go to my book in the 2000s then. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I guess it wouldn't make sense. He said in the 90s. Yeah, it would have right? been like like 98, I guess, or something like that when, when, when he ditched this book. Okay. He's got a weird bibliography because there's like, he did these, he's got two big runs and we're going to talk about both of okay. them tonight basically back to back oddly <laughs> enough but he doesn't really have he's got a lot of fill-ins in other spots and he doesn't do a bunch like a lot of Main, long runs yeah. he's got these two long runs he's got a long run on starman he's got a long run on the book i'm going to talk about yeah. next and i don't see any other long runs in his bibliography yeah and I, th- I think he did the i th- want to say he might have done the covers all the way till the end of the series uh but i think he stopped doing the interiors uh he's yeah he's a real good cover artist too he is my favorite cover artist of all time and again we're going to talk about nice. that in a minute um but yeah in this particular case with starman because it is a character whose powers are so closely tied to light he was doing a lot of cool stuff with like interplay yeah. of light and shadow in this book but in terms of going back to the writing i'm always a fan of books that have a really well fleshed out and well-developed porting cast and this 
fucking book absolutely had that. So it had like like this family of police officers. I can't remember their names off the top of my head. It was all it's set in Opal City, which is a city that has historically been part of the DC universe, but it's not anywhere ever anybody ever really spends time. It's basically it's yeah. been the city that Starman is the hero for, so there's not really a lot of other heroes there. And it feels like it like sort of a Seattle or Portlandy kind of city. Yeah. And yeah, so there's this family of police officers that again is a generational story and he ends up dating one of them and there's also this character uh, sort of an anti-hero former like reformed villain called the Shade and they've they've done mini series based around him as well post this uh, series. One of the things that was really cool about this series is that they weren't afraid to take the spotlight entirely off of Jack Knight for like a three or four issue story. So that's like a three or four month fucking run and just do a story about some of the supporting cast members like the shade and who's an immortal and has been around for four or 500 years or something like that. And sort of his backstory and shit like that or they would all they would have like these times past issues that were set in different time periods that would feature the original Starman or one of the other iterations of Starman and shit like that and so it was just doing a lot of really cool shit at a time when the bulk of the stories out there were like edgelord like fucking rob liefeld everybody has a lot of pouches and huge shoulder pads kind of thing yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah, it was very reactionary to all that kind of stuff too, which is interesting. It's much more down to earth, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Know, I love. I love Starman. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's a book. Some everybody should have read if you're like a comic. Yeah, guy. and it is. It's, it's like eighty something issues, but they're pretty quick reads because you get so engaged in the story, and it's very heavily yeah. serialized as well. So you, it's one of those books where you're just like, I want to keep reading and see what's going on here. And this Jack Knight character actually does end up on that Jeff Johns era of the Justice Society that we were talking about and that we've That's recommended right. in the past as well. So yep, yeah. So Jack Knight Starman starting in ninety four to two thousand and one. So what is your 2000s pick now that i've bridged us into the early 2000s so into the early 2000s i was going to just say next wave next wave next wave next wave next wave <laughs> that one i'm pretty sure that you have recommended now. but i'm i know i have <laughs> recommended it um, but i want to do an episode on it at some point so go read it everybody ex machina mm. a Wildstorm book by brian k vaughn and tony harris so nice yeah this is one of my favorite books of all time. I've uh, probably we haven't talked about it on the show. It's a weird book because it's like it is a Wildstorm book. It has nothing to do with anything that Wildstorm was doing at the time. It's not in continuity at Wildstorm. It's just its own story. Yeah. So there's no superheroes in this universe. Yeah. So like it's published by Wildstorm, but has nothing to do with like the Stormwatcher Authority continuity that they have had then or have now, kind of thing. Um, but there's something about this story that just kind of haunts me, and it's there's that book that stuck with me, and it may be the art because Tony Harris fuck this guy is good like this is the book like this is kind of the book where i discovered him and went back to starman because Mm -hmm. of because he kills the pencils on this like the illustration on this book is arguably one of my it's probably like top five art jobs on a comic ever and he did all 50 issues like just did them all no no breaks no nothing so the story of ex machina is like it's kind of a post 9-11 politics story um, so basically, uh, it's Michael Hundred is the mayor of New York, and the reason he won was because at one point he dressed up as the only superhero in that world called the Great Machine, and who could obviously talk to and hear machines, like from the simplest toaster to giant mainframes and incidentally airplanes, mm. because he happened to be there at 9-11 and stopped the second plane from hitting oh. the second tower. Oh. So 
he's like it's kind of an alternate history yeah. thing where he's the only superhero and he stops the second plane and thus becomes mayor of New York because of the celebrity that that mm-hmm. causes. But like the whole story is just about how his off malign because they make fun of him for dressing up as a superhero and doing shit because it's a post kind of it's 2003 ish I think this the book started so it's still in that mainstream acceptance of this kind of entertainment was not accepted yet obviously yeah. like we were still kind of in that pre like nerd renaissance or like pre Marvel movies so everybody thought it was cool so everybody was doing fucking superheroes that dressed in like uh, that dressed in trench Black coats leather. and shit like that rather than yeah yeah <laughs> actual costumes yeah because he actually gets into a costume but it's a ridiculous like armor thing with a big helmet and wings and shit like that. Like he looks like an idiot flying around. And I, I totally agree that he looks like an idiot when he's flying <laughs> around as the great machine. But like the whole, the story is told like in time during his four year stint as the mayor of New York. And it deals with like the conspiracy and the alien invasion that like caused him to get his powers, but like also all this stuff that he did as a superhero coming back and biting his administration in the ass. And there's all kinds of topical stuff about like New York search and seizure stuff all this stuff that was very popular to talk about in the 2000s, like what you would have seen on The Daily Show or all the politics of mm-hmm. that time because it was based in post-9-11 New York. It was this crazy, like there's commentary on the Bushes and they mentioned Trump, like pre-president, just like he's a billionaire in the city that everybody kind of hates. So, you know, nothing has changed, <laughs> I guess. Oh, God. Yeah, no kidding, eh? I don't know. We, we don't talk about Brian K. Vaughan a lot on the on the show. Like He's come up, but we've never actually talked about one of his books, I yeah. don't think. I know why The Last I Man is Paul might have. We, we, I think we did one comic episode with Paul, and I think he brought the up Runaways, BKB. I think he brought... Or, yeah. or Saga, maybe? Probably. Is that Saga? Maybe BKB? Saga. Like Right now, Wise in the news a lot because of the TV show right. coming, and Saga is still ongoing, so that's kind of a concern that's happening. Also, Runaways is a Brian K. Vaughan book also, and that's got a TV series right. happening right now. Um, but this is one of those, what, like it's like an overlooked gem in his bibliography that I feel like maybe is over just, is just overlooked because A, it's very tied to a specific time mm-hmm. period, and now removed from that time period, seems quaint and innocent compared to the fucking madness that we're living through right now. Mark, this fucking podcast is supposed to be escapism. I don't want to think. <laughs> I know, but like we're talking about <laughs> politics on Ex Machina, and <laughs> either way, again, it's kind of a deconstructive story, but it's, I don't know. It feels very real world, and it just works. Like, Brian K. Vaughn writes good, snappy dialogue, and the fucking art that Tony Harris puts into this book is just like almost. It's too late for it to be the reason why I wanted to get into comics and like draw this kind of stuff. But it's one of those books that I looked at and was just like, fuck, I got a long way to go until I'm like this guy because this guy is next level good. So if you haven't read Ex Machina, I definitely recommend you pick it up and read it. It's 50 issues. It is a little dense, like there's a lot of dialogue. It's a very, it's a politics. It's basically like West Wing in Greasy Mansion, but with a super, a former superhero kind of in the mayor seat and it's it's pretty entertaining so if you haven't read it it's dark as fuck though so like if you're expecting like shiny happy times like it's gory and nasty and some of the stories are not political like the pc culture didn't exist in 2003 the way it does now so cautionary tale i guess is what i'm trying to say or caution yourself before you go read it because yeah some of the language is what we would consider unacceptable now but it was 2003 that's just how we talked back then you know it's fucked up to say it, 2003 back 15 then. 15 years ago. More than 15. Yeah. It's been 15 years, yeah. So there Things you go. Change. But yeah, definitely, if you haven't read Ex Machina, it's uh, it's definitely a book you should. I'm actually kind of impressed you like completely missed out on it because it is kind of tangentially DC-related yeah. because of the Wildstorm. Yeah, I didn't... I, and Tony did Harris. DC, yeah, I guess DC owned Wildstorm at this point, but I didn't really... 
I think they might have bought them in the middle of the run, yeah, actually, okay. is what ended up happening. Yeah, I didn't really start reading any of the Wildstorm stuff until they started publishing it. Like, basically, they erased the Wildstorm Indica mm. entirely and started publishing that stuff under DC. And now they've kind of, I mean, now there's this Wildstorm stuff that's happening yeah, that's, yeah, that's still under, that's, that's still, it's a separate universe, but it's still under the DC Indica. And so. Mm. Yeah, and so I did read like the Stormwatch and Wildcat stuff that DC did. Are, wait, are you saying? Are you trying to say? Are you trying to say? Yeah, sorry. Indica's in, weed. Indica and, is Indica's weed. Yeah, <laughs> you're making me want to smoke. <laughs> Indicia. Yeah, and so I read some of that like Stormwatch and Wildcat stuff and like Gen 13 stuff that came out like around like 2010 or whatever. I think oh, uh, okay. when when it was like when they'd folded those characters into the DC universe briefly and it never really worked because the tones between those. And I mean, they did play with that a little bit and try and like hang a light lampshade on that a little bit, that these characters were like very out of place in this, you know, in this very more sort of black and whitey kind of DC universe, but it never really meshed. Yeah. I always thought that the Gen 13 kids would have hung better in the DC universe, but they just never seemed to like find a spot for them to yeah. hang. Cause there's like already there's already Titans, Titans, right? And, yeah. 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 I, I remember the original Gen 13 run kind of fondly, but it's probably more just cause Jim Lee and J Scott Campbell were mm-hmm. drawing it and it wasn't actually very good. I just liked the yeah. art more than anything else. So that happened in the nineties a lot to me where I'd be reading a book and be like, man, this, I don't know if this is any good, but I really like looking yeah. at the way these guys draw. I wasted a lot of money on comics. It was just because I was looking at the artist yeah, I started chasing writers around in the 2000s more so. Mm-hmm. So that's again why I ended up on Next Machinas because I was kind of following Brian K. Vaughn from, I think he'd already done Y, and I went from Y and he started doing this. And I was like, well, I was right into like starting to become interested in politics and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, superhero mayor of New York, interesting. Mm-hmm. Gimme, gimme, gimme. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, uh, it stuck with me. It's one of those ones that I think about every once in a while. I'm like, yeah, I should reread that. Um, I have I own all the hardcover trades of this book. Like it's yeah, it's one of those books that I go back to a lot. I mean, not go back to, but I think about a lot because like I remember fondly. Mm-hmm. Also, the art. First, this is why I want to talk about his cover art though, because his cover art on this, like, just go through the cover gallery for Ex Machina, like while we're sitting here and just look at what he does. It is fucking bonkers how good his covers are on this book. Um, they're all super like what, like he's a very talented illustrator, but he's also a very very talented graphic designer. And the covers are just like next level crazy. Nice, yeah, look pretty good. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty good. So yeah, if you uh, haven't read Ex Machina, do yourself a favor, and it's fifty issues plus. Like you got to read one miniseries because you don't get to find out about his uh, Great Machine Nemesis without reading a three issue miniseries mm-hmm. that they did, like getting the detail of what happened. That's not drawn by Tony Harris, but it is written by Brian K. Vaughan. I definitely so. see some of the, the there's there's definitely some of these titles that are covers that are really reminiscent of some of the Starman t- uh, covers yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, he's got a yeah. style, but like he's it's very like good, like so good. Very like mid-century modern, like art, art deco, like mu- Muka like kind of art nouveau. Yeah. 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 Like, like it's almost like turn of the century poster yeah. design, but done digitally with amazing comic art on top of it kind of thing a lot of the time it's just i love those covers like they've really stuck with me as like I, i'm thinking about doing covers for other stuff or like doing commissions and stuff i go look at yeah. those and be like what kind of weird fucked up shit can i do to the design of this the way tony harris would have and i know tony harris is very problematic for his views on cosplayers at some point in history i know he got some shit at some point for shooting his <laughs> mouth off i don't whatever guess what guy draws like a <laughs> god that's all i look at so there you Fair go enough. Go read it. 
All right, my poll for the 2000s is Jeff Johns' Green Lantern run, basically. Starting at Rebirth, which was 2005, and going, again, this bridge is a little bit into the next decade, into like 2011. I mean, really, that initial like Green Lantern Rebirth miniseries, which was like six issues, as Jeff Johns wrote it, and uh, Ethan Van Syver drew it. It was the sort of that series that really started DC's trend that has gone on until a few years ago of using that rebirth tag to refresh characters and bring back certain like legacy elements of their origins into sort of continuities that had become maybe a little bit more convoluted and people had tried to like ham-handedly update and shit like that and they're like all right all right let's bring these fucking characters back to their roots and this was i think this was the first one to do it i think flash rebirth came after this I don't remember. I'd like the the problem is there is secondary there to me. Sorry, I don't want to say this because I'm going to get in trouble. But they are secondary characters to me that I don't necessarily pay attention to their yeah. main books because they're not Batman. That's basically all I really read on DC's regular yeah. basis. Kind yeah, of Flash basis. Rebirth came after this. That was like 2009, and that was also Johns and Van Syver. But yeah, so yeah. the that Green Lantern initial miniseries again really brought the character back to its roots and sort of gave it a, a refresh. But then that run went on to really massively expand the Green Lantern world and sort of that cosmic part of the DCU in a lot of really interesting ways. Ways that now... Like people would say, like, I can't imagine a Green Lantern book without some of these elements, like yeah. all the other colors of lanterns for starters. I was going to say, this is the run where, like, the yeah. the rest of the spectrum of rings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thing, at the, right? up until this point, there had been like Green Lanterns and there had been, you know, Sinestro had his yellow ring, but Sinestro yeah. brought that yellow ring into his own entire core, the Sinestro core. We learned during this that the Star Sapphires have the Violet Rings. Their rings are part of the spectrum as well. And then you get um, Indigo Lanterns, you get Blue Lanterns, you get Orange Lanterns. Well, you get one Orange Lantern, which is Larflees, which is a character that originated here as well. You get the Red Lanterns powered by Rage. And all of that came from this fucking storyline, this run. So Ethan Van Syver originally did the art, but I mean... other big artists eventually took over. So Ivan Rice ended up doing the art on this book and then Doug Mankey. And all of those are fucking outstanding artists and did so much cool shit on these books. Was that Ivan Rice's like first big pull too? Like when he got uh, on this book? It's got to be pretty early for him. I was going to say, it was the, it's the first time I remember hearing his name in connection to a big book was the uh, Green Lantern yeah. book. I like Ivan Rice. He's one of those guys that like when I see his name on a DC book that I am picking up, I'm like, oh, thank God. At least I know it's going to be exquisitely well drawn yeah it must have been pretty early like it looks like he started sort of blowing up around like the early or like mid 2000s kind of thing then he did just a shitload of dc after that yeah so yeah this would have been pretty early in his work anyways and this was also the during this tenure was like the the blackest night storyline where there were these like death zombie lanterns uh led by black hand who were bringing back to life all or basically like reanimating corpses of all these like key dc characters that had died and like haunting the characters that they're associated with and there was a lot of cool tie-in issues and shit like that associated with that story and they all even did at one point because you know the black lanterns were like resurrecting old characters they brought back a bunch of dead series and gave them like one extra issue so i think one of them i remember was like catwoman the 90s catwoman series ended at like issue 81 
And so this is like yeah. 10 years later or something like that, or maybe not quite that much, but they brought back and there was Catwoman 82 and it was a series, you know, or one issue, like one shot Blackest Night tie-in where they like brought back one of, I think, I think it was that character that uh, from Batman year one, the younger Oh, Holly. Yeah, Holly, yeah. I think maybe they brought back and had her yeah. like she shows haunting, up every once in a while. Yeah, haunting uh Selena and shit like that. Selena. So yeah, all sorts of cool de- again, more like DC legacy stuff coming in in that storyline. Well. Would that have been in the middle of the Brubacher run too? Because like Brubacher was working on Catwoman around the same time. Like that's when that not the current costume, but the very famous like goggle yeah, costume yeah, yeah. that she's been in. Like that's kind of where that originated from. It was around this era. Because that's when I was at least kind of paying attention more to DC because they were doing cool shit like relaunching Green Lantern. Batman was excellent at this point, also in the mid two thousands. Yeah, Catwoman was good. Nightwing was excellent at this point. All of the Bat Family books were good around this time. Yeah, well, the, that Brubaker run I think was like two thousand and one ish, and then went on until mm-hmm. like three or four. Yeah. I think. Yeah, went on went on for quite a while, but yeah, it must have been finished by this point. So. But yeah, so that overall Green Lantern run, like if you like the more cosmic-y side of stuff and, you know, like Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, this was also the story that really brought Hal, Hal Jordan back to the forefront as Green Lantern because he'd been dead for like 10 years uh, and acting as the, uh, the Spectre for a while, which is also, there's some really cool shit in that storyline as well. And also his whole turn as Parallax and Zero Hour and stuff. I like this stuff with him and the Spectre because he ends up, when he comes back, if they end up with Crispus Allen as the Spectre mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. at that point, because that's the end of Gotham Central. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite. I got another story that, like, at some point we should all look at and like do an episode about is Gotham Central. It's a weird, like, spot in Batman continuity yeah. to like go back and look at, but it's a cool story that, like, I don't know why they don't keep that kind of book around, like having the cops, yeah, an expanded cast kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I always I, I love Gotham Central. I think they should bring something like that back. I think it would be great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this this run, this is one of those like Green Lantern runs where like I knew it was happening and I knew it was huge. And Green Lantern is one of those characters where I'm always like, okay, yeah, that's cool, that's cool. And I'm like, especially like Jeff Johns's propensity, and it's more with the Flash that I hate it than with Green Lantern because I don't really Kyle Rayner never did anything for me either way. Mm-hmm. And him bringing Hal back, I was like fine. But his like thing with Barry and like getting rid of Wally, like at that point, yeah. like when they switched back to Barry, I was like. Man, Wally's my Flash. I grew up with Wally. Fuck Barry Allen. Like, I don't give a shit about this old man. Like, that was one of those things for me. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was another huge thing, though. Like, that was a massive event was them bringing back Barry Allen after, because that was, he'd been dead for fucking 30 years at that point in real, you know, real world time kind of thing. That was one of those, one of those deaths. Yeah. One of those deaths that really stuck uh, for for a long long time. And yeah. Yeah, that was those mid two thousands years, man. Like everybody came back at that point because, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's when Barry came back. Yeah, Cat, Hal, you know, Bucky yep. came back. Hal came back. Yeah, craziness. Cool. Yeah. So we're into our last decade, the current decade. So give me your recommended story from the past nine years. Um, this is a little bit of a curveball because it is a mainstream Marvel book, but it also is a Warren Ellis book. Okay. So I get to win <laughs> for once. So there is a run of books during the Heroic Age, so just post-Civil War, called it was called Secret Avengers. And the first batch of issues were written by I don't know who. I just read them, and they were pretty forgettable. But they were drawn by Mike Diodato Jr., mm. who is fucking awesome. But around issue 16, the magical Warren Ellis takes over for five issues. And it turns basically Secret Avengers into global frequency in the Marvel Universe. So the basic premise is that Steve Rogers is the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. now. And he's recruited uh, Agent 13, who's Sharon Carter, 
Natasha Romanoff, so the Black Widow, War Machine, James Rhodes, Hank McCoy, and Valkyrie. So Beast, Beast obviously, yeah. and then Valkyrie. And also, for some fucking reason, a guy who's going to get a lot of love in the next couple of years, Moon Knight, <laughs> is on the team. So whenever they credit them, they tell you what each character's like assignment was. So like Natasha's the spy and Hank's the brains. And anytime they mention Moon Knight, Moon Knight, crazy person. Yeah. And that's crazy person role. beats the shit out of people. <laughs> and that's what he does, right? <laughs> it's again, Warren's got this really nice way of like, if he's just going to do single issues or he's going to just going to drop in for a couple issues, he just makes it light and fun comic book story kind of thing. And that's what this is. He basically turns Secret Avengers into global frequency where weird shit happens and Steve gets whatever, whoever's around and they just go fucking deal with it. <laughs> and it turns into like somebody's built a Von Doom time portal which is one of those like the plate time portals that are mm-hmm. very, like if you're a marvel 616 fan it's like kind of a famous image of yeah that's how they get back to camelot is using one of those things in that classic iron man issue but he's built one that's as wide as cincinnati and he's going to use it to lift cincinnati or not he's not going to this other terrorist group is going to use it to lift cincinnati and then drop cincinnati on somebody else because that's what like these von Doom teleporters can and they're in a, a giant underground city two miles beneath Cincinnati. Like, it's just crazy Warren Ellis shit, right? Like, the kind of stuff you would hear in Planetary. Yeah. So Steve and Hank and Natasha get into the flying shield car, because, of course, they're going to get into the flying shield car, and go down into the bunker where they have to stop them. And this is just one issue, okay? <laughs> this is one issue of this book, where they have to stop this terrorist cell from, like, activating this Von Doom teleporter and whatever. And it's nuts. Like, it's just crazy. Moon Knight's killing people and snarking and, like, mouthing off at Steve and shit. And, like, Natasha and Hank can't fucking stand each other because Hank won't stop talking because he's a <laughs> science guy. Yeah. He's ex- trying to explain to them how the Von Doom platform works. And they're all like, nobody cares. How do we stop it? Shut yeah. up. It's all Warren Ellisy, like, snappy, kind of that kind of stuff. Good good team dynamics. Or fun, fun awesome team, team dynamics. dynamics. Yeah. Fun team dynamics, yeah. basically. Yeah, Warren is really good at, like, fun team dynamics because like the next issue is valkyrie war machine black widow and cap trying to take down like some kind of zombie dump truck terrorist (laughs) bomb thing like it's fuck it's the weirdest shit but it's so much fun because they're just snarking at each other and blowing things up it's what a comic book should be and it's five issues long and you can get in and out real fast and you'll be entertained so that's why i'm recommending it because I love Warren Ellis writing mainstream Marvel stuff because, like, when they let his freak flag fly, he writes the weirdest, craziest stuff, but it's so much fun. Yeah, when they'll actually let him play around with those, like, pretty big name characters. Yeah, and and that's why I like this one because, like, he's got Captain America and, like, I mean, at the time, War Machine was nobody and most of these characters were basically nobody because it's all pre-the-movies kind of thing happening. 2010 is, it's getting there, like, they were getting there, but not quite. So nobody really cared about them, but, like, man, it was just a fun book for those five issues and then like the next team came on and i was like oh they want to treat this seriously well i don't want to do that like that's not what i was there for i was there for like warren ellis turned this into global frequency with snarking like moon knight so yeah also his moon knight run a couple years afterwards definitely something that everybody should check out uh he did that with declan chavely like he did the illustrations on it fucking gold i can't even tell you who drew this because like everybody every book was a different illustrator it does cap mm-hmm. off at issue 21 with uh a reunion of the next wave team because uh stuart Immonen draws the last issue so issue 21 is warren ellis and stewart along with stewart's longtime inker who i know and i shouldn't remember his name but i'm a piece of shit and i can't remember right now and i didn't write it down <laughs> so there you go but yeah it's like 
I don't know. If you can give Warren the keys to these characters and like get the fuck out of his way and whatever, just let him put these characters in whatever bizarre scenario his caffeine, nicotine, and rage fueled fucking brain can cook up. Just mm-hmm. do that for me and just get out of the way. <laughs> I'm cool with it. And if you haven't read this run, go read these five issues. Context or no, it's just batshit superheroics and it's fun. So there you nice. go. Cool. What we were talking about, Paul and I, we've kind of referenced this a couple times. That's kind of what we're hoping the uh, Winter Soldier, I want to call it Winter Soldier Captain America, but it's actually Winter Soldier Falcon. Even though when he gets to S.H.I.E.L.D., he should be Captain America. Okay, yeah. That's kind of what I want that show to, show, to turn into because Sharon Carter is going to be in that show as well. And it just sounds like they've almost got the makings of craziness. Like they could bring that Moon Knight in, you know, let's do Secret Avengers, guys. Let's get crazy. Let's have crazy fun. <laughs> nice. uh, but it'll be fun to do. So, and bring Warren in because if you're gonna do it, like get the master to lead you down the path to insanity. Because, <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're at the end. My last one here is a for anybody that was wondering why I had not recommended a Superman book yet. You'll here get your. Yep. Hey, here we go. We got my Warren Ellis one, so we got to get them out yeah. of the way eventually. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this was. So I'm recommending Superman, Lois, and Clark, which uh, ran uh, was only eight issues uh, between end of, end of 2015, beginning of 2016. Wait, didn't that show run for like two or three years? It did. Yeah, yeah. that was in the 90s. Oh, okay, but it, sure it was. was uh, <laughs> it, uh, it had some good shit, but a lot of it was terrible. Yeah, she was eating frogs at one point. I was like, man, you're just killing my teriyaki boner. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> this is not really related to the comic book no. except that it uh, or to the tv show uh this was uh written by dan jurgens and uh drawn by lee weeks it was basically a spin-off of dc's big convergence event which brought back a lot of classic character elements that had sort of been lost in the new 52 reboot uh, about five years earlier so convergence basically the idea of it was that there was uh, a lot of these classic characters had been sort of living their own lives, but sort of just shut off from the rest of DC continuity. And so in this case, we get to see that there was still this little like pocket universe where the pre-Flashpoint, like post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, Clark Kent was married to Lois Lane, as she had been like since 1998 or something like that. And uh, at this point, she was pregnant with their kid. That was what we sort of saw in the Convergence storyline. And then... Superman, Lois, and Clark picks up those same versions of the characters like nine years later. Their kid is like nine years old. Clark is operating in secret in the new 52 universe. Basically, there's this new 52 version of Superman that's out there, but he's sort of incognito, like has this like black suit with a silver S shield and like white boots uh, and has like a full beard and everything. Like basically like dad bod Superman kind of thing. It's almost like the um, Batman Beyond uh, when they did Justice League Unlimited in uh, yeah. Like yeah. that kind of outfit. I love that costume. Yeah. So any harkening back to that would be a big win for me. And Lois is writing like anonymous investigative pieces because there's another Lois Lane out there as well. Right. So both of them are having to basically live like the secret life, but Clark just can't help himself from being out there and helping people. He's just doing it in the shadows rather than in front of the, all the cameras kind of thing. And it, it's just a, it's a run that gives a lot of great dynamic of their relationship and you get to see their family dynamic and how they deal with John, their, their son or Jonathan Kent, who's named after Clark's dad, uh, starting to develop his own powers. And it's just, it's a lot of like little really heartwarming notes and stuff. Ultimately, these two versions of Superman get merged together during DC Rebirth, and we get what is 
basically a, the pre-crisis Superman back again. And that's kind of where we're at right now in the stories. And that's what uh, post-crisis, sorry. Um, yeah, post-crisis, pre, pre-flashpoint. Yeah, pre, pre-crisis is like God Superman. Like, you don't want yeah, him. Yeah, him, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's basically what we have now, where Jonathan Kent is, you know, been around for a few years now and is, has had like, a lot of his own. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Having their own little uh, stories. There have been a couple runs uh, featuring the Super Sons, which yeah. are Damian Wayne and Jonathan Kent. And there's a lot of really fun stuff going on there. And this is where all of that sort of started and okay. long-term listeners of the podcast will have heard me in the past extol the virtues of Dan Jurgens writing Superman. There are just few writers that really get the character of the way that he does and how to write him in a compelling way, especially in an ongoing series rather than just like in a limited capacity. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean like obviously his history with the character like goes back decades now, like he's been writing, yeah. drawing Superman since like as far, like, yeah, he wrote the wedding. And, yeah. Like I swear to God, he's been just, has he done anything except Superman? <laughs> he wrote the well, he wrote Justice League, but that was when basically the Justice League after the Giffen and De Mateus run, okay. uh, basically the same time that the death of Superman was happening. Right. He was writing Justice League at that time as well. Uh, that was sort of like that Bloodwind era kind yes. of thing where he was left with some of those same characters, but he's not this really the same comedic writer. So he was no. taking a more serious bend with them and it worked sometimes, sometimes it didn't kind of thing, but now, my, my other question is, does he ever fucking draw anymore? Because that's what I used to love about Danger. His Superman is yeah. the Superman that I see in my head. I mean, kind of the Jerry Ordway one, but like... Yeah, Lee Weeks' yeah. art on this was very reminiscent of Jurgen's okay. original, like, Superman drawings. Uh, so, his, like, that run from on the... What is it? It was just Superman, right? Like, he must have drawn that book for fucking 70 issues or some shit like that. Like, something like, like that, yeah. Long, long time. And, like, man, that was the Superman I grew up with. Like, yeah, like the way he yeah. drew him. And he drew a good Superman. Shitty Batman, yeah. but a good Superman. Yeah, let's see. I'm going to look up his comic book DB page. He's definitely doing writing right now. Like he did. I know he writing. writes mainly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've but... been seeing that's the kind of the thing that like a lot of the guys that get into the cover side of things do. Like, like I've seen Brian Hitch doing a lot more writing uh, and less drawing, which is unfortunate because Brian Hitch is, again, one of those guys that I really look to. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he's one of my favorite pencilers. And the fact that he's like, I'm going to write instead of draw, I'm like, that's a. I mean, maybe he's more timely that way because he was a slow penciler, but man, his pencils were worth waiting for. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not seeing... I, he does, like, every once in a while, he'll do, like, a one-off story or something like that. I'm sure he does covers at this point so he can get some extra loot, so there's that, too. Yeah. Uh, where's his pencils? That's his... Why does why is there nothing here saying it's fucking penciling? That's my problem. Oh, there like, is, they there don't is. necessarily do like a division between like the writer and the penciler, or like when, yeah, yeah. Like when you look at the bibliography, it's not delineated. Yeah, like in the last like ten years, he's done like an annual here and there, or like a fill-in run of uh, of like drawing and stuff like that. Like he did a little bit in uh, Action One Thousand, I remember. Yeah. right? like he did yeah. a couple pages in there. So yeah, and like he drew the Convergent Superman issue or okay. one of those issues, and again, that was where sort of this storyline kind of started out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of ongoing, I don't think he's been doing a whole lot of like ongoing pencils. He's, he was a he's an excellent excellent powerhouse. Yeah, like, one of my one of my favorite person. artists. Yeah. I actually, I, I see his Superman before I see Jim Lee Superman, and Jim Lee Superman is fucking omnipresent everywhere at all times. Mm-hmm. And I still picture like kind of shaggy-haired Dan Jurgens post-death Superman or like post uh, Reign of the Superman Superman kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was like, man, he drew probably thirty issues running up to the death, and then another thirty issues after he came back, and he ran 
drew every issue in that run too. So yeah, he did a lot. I think work. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that I'm liking the the stuff that Bendis is doing right now with uh, writing Superman is because it is very reminiscent of what Jurgens did with the character. Like, I think he gets it and it gets that character in a very similar way to what Jurgens does and knows sort of how to play with it. They're running him on like the kind of weekly thing, right? Or not weekly, but like where he's kind of writing everything and getting to kind of control mm-hmm. the whole thing, the way Jurgens kind of did when he was like during the death. Uh, to an well, extent, I guess that was yeah. Mike I mean, Carlin, he's, too. like Mike Carlin was, yeah, was the editor that was, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then they just had this big collaborative effort between the writers on the yeah. like three or four or five books, depending on what part of that triangle numbering era you're looking at. Well, I mean, like Man of Tomorrow was the fill in, right? Like on the, the yeah, five that was the, yeah, 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 yeah. Still Tom my favorite like, actual title for a Superman comic that they never use on a regular basis is one of those ones Man that I would, tomorrow. yeah, yeah, I would go back to that one more often. Yeah, nice. So. so that gets us up to date. Uh, but looking forward, is there anything uh, coming up in the comic book world that you are excited for? You can think of not offhand. I've been just dabbling lately. Obviously, Tom King's Batman is something that I'm like actively invested mm-hmm. in, and that is coming up to a conclusion very quickly, mm-hmm. unless they decide to like really not conclude it and let his Batman Catwoman book that's coming. I guess I think it is going to be somewhat of a continuation yeah which would kind of bum me out because i would hope they would get like the, the finished story in batman but hey man if he's going to keep writing this batman the way he's writing batman i've said batman too many times in that sentence <laughs> then they should just let him keep writing batman because tom king does yeah. awesome work i'm trying to think of anything else not offhand the big one for me that i'm pretty excited for right now is jeff johns and jason Fabox three jokers miniseries that's going to oh, be under finally the- doing that yeah, I don't know that it's, uh, I think it's like end of this year kind of thing. Like it's been in the works for a, a year and a half or something like that because Jeff Johns has been doing uh, movies Doomsday Clock yeah, and consulting on the movies and shit like that as well. But so this is a story that was teased at the end of that Batman and Flash crossover, The Button, which was also Jeff Johns and I think also Jason Favok, where Batman basically finds out that there has been three Jokers all along. And that's kind of where they leave it. But there's like, there are three, each of them has like one of the Joker's sort of classic comic appearances. Like one is very much like the Scott Snyder Joker. One is like the Brian Bolin Joker. And one is like the really early. Like Dick Sprang kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Like Jerry Robinson, Dick Sprang stuff. Yeah. And so this is going to sort of go back and explain that in more depth. And it's going to be, you know, Batman kind of figuring out how he had not realized this all these years. And it's also going to apparently feature Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, and Jason Todd, the Red Hood, uh, both of whom have very intense histories with some version of the Joker as well. So I think that that, I mean, Jeff Johns writing Batman, writing this, you know, another one of these really big, like, world, shattering kind of stories is always something that i'm going to be excited for i'm curious because his he he is not my favorite batman writer you like when because he hasn't really touched him very often but i find when he does use him he's got a very specific like tone he hits and Mm -hmm. he does like angry bat god bruce mostly Mm -hmm. i'm kind of over angry bat god bruce i kind of like the way like he's been written by scott snyder and tom king is a much more like grounded kind of hearkening back to the neil adams denny o'neill like, yeah, he's really, really fucking good, but, like, he does have his limits kind of character. Yeah. So. And Tom King's been writing him that way as well, like, you know, where Bane has really broken him psychologically this time. Yeah, and, and like, I, yeah, Tom King did that and, like, immediately started going back to the Ra- Ra's al Ghul, like, oh, I always mispronounce it now because of the fucking Ra's. movie. 
right? Like the Rachel Ghoul stuff early on yeah. in his run was like him just being like, yeah, we're going to get back to that Neil Adams stuff because that's the good shit. That's like, if we'd done 70s, that was the run I would have recommended because yeah. that 60s, 70s Batman, Neil Adams, Daniel Neil stuff is like my Batman. Um, there is a Batman. Where... Neil Adams is writing a new uh, Batman I... Rachel Ghoul miniseries, except no. he's, he's, he's writing it as well as yeah. drawing it. And so it's going to be batshit insane I... and... When he still does stuff, he should stop he's, doing writing. He's still a great fucking artist, but he Such needs to stop answer, writing yeah. his own shit. It's too bad Denny O'Neill's not still around to like write for him again, because like mm-hmm. he seemed to. I don't know. That was like that was books are like yeah. If you were gonna go back to the seventies, the Denny O'Neill Neil Autumn stuff is like yeah, that's Green Lantern, shit. Green, the Green Lantern, stuff, Green Arrow stuff's excellent as well as traveling like, heroes. Yeah, as well as their run on Batman is like legendary. Kinda, it was like the first Batman I remember reading when I was a kid, like felt like the Batman and the Tim Burton movie and actually yeah. even cooler than that. Like it felt more real world than that. Like that's a very kind of heightened reality that they, the Tim Burton presented. Whereas like, this was like, yeah, there's a dude in a bat suit in a city and this is kind of how it works in the late seventies. It's sketchy and shit. And there's some weird stuff. And yeah, he fights a fucking werewolf in a construction site, but you know what? <laughs> it's fucking badass Cause Neil Adams drew it and it looks amazing. Like his pencils from that era still stand up against shit that was being done now, yeah. which is crazy. So just his expressions are oh, yeah. fe- are phenomenal, but yeah, cool. So that is Mark and I fucking rambling about comics for an hour and a half. So oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that. So let's move on to our final stingless segment. No lonely sting this time. Uh, Geek cred, where we each just pimp something we've been enjoying lately, which we've basically done this whole podcast. Yeah, but basically. Let's go outside of comic books, maybe now. <laughs> I was going to recommend, like, just do, go read Ex Machina, because it's in my head, and I'm in the middle of rereading it, but um, I can recommend something else. I know I recommended it last week, but I was more obviously pushing you to get to that Tool record, because you should listen to the Tool album. But uh, the Lana Del Rey record I've spent a little bit more time with this week, and it's actually really good. So nice. I've been grooving to that a little bit when I'm not listening to Tool still on repeat endlessly, because nice. the Tool's real good. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, I still have not listened to it. I'll need to get it. And all right, so my geek cred for this week is going to be going back to a classic. I rewatched Monty Python's Life of Brian this afternoon, and that fucking movie is just so so good. Oh and god, that movie fucking so kills me. So irreverent, and it's just it's just one of those movies that is just like joke after joke after joke. It's so just packed in, and it's one of those ones that even having watched it many times over the years i can watch it now and pick up jokes that i've never gotten before and shit like that i was just gonna say like every time i watch this this is a movie that every time i watch it i catch a joke that i'm like how the fuck did i miss that for the past like 20 30 years or whatever because you'd been laughing at the previous joke and but yeah it's like you almost got to watch it just like i don't even know like super depressed or something like that so you can catch every joke and not laugh at all of them i don't know it's weird because every time i watch that movie um, that meaning of life, and uh, I mean, Holy Grail, obviously, yeah. is one of those ones too. But like, yeah, Life of Brian. I mean, I'll take any takedown of the Catholic Church I can get because <laughs> fuck those guys. But like, well, that's the thing. Like, on top of the movie itself, uh, which is just a fucking comedy masterpiece. Like mm-hmm. the story of what it took to get that movie made, and how like George Harrison was the one that yeah. ultimately ended up financing it because nobody would fucking pay them to make it. And you know and, why, like, right? Just because he read the script and wanted to see it. He's yeah. like, I really want to yeah. see what these fucking maniacs are going to do. So I'm Yeah, I just watched the feature this do. afternoon, too. Yeah. Oh, and man. It's craziness. They have the interview in it where George Harrison is basically just like, yeah, he's just like, 
yeah, I read the script and I just fucking, I wanted to see this movie. So I gave them the $4 million to make this movie. I like mortgaged my fucking house to make this movie. And then. Yeah, horse shit. He mortgaged his house. He was a fucking beetle. My ass even mortgaged <laughs> his house. He just went yeah. to the bank and was like, oh, can I afford this? Oh, that's the interest for this year? Okay, fine. Give it to him. <laughs> yeah. I don't fucking care. Because he was a fucking beetle. So there you yeah. go. And the Blu-ray has a great like hour-long featurette around the making of it and like a lot of the press and stuff that they'd done around it where because it did obviously draw a lot of fucking aggro from the Catholic Church. Could you and, imagine? Yeah. They could never make that movie now. That's like one of those movies. It's like um what was I thinking about? Like Blazing Saddles. You can never make yeah. these movies now. Like you'd not make that movie in the current climate ever. Uh, ever, ever. I think you could make Life of Brian. I don't know if you can make Blazing Saddles. You could not Blazing make Blazing Saddles. Saddles. <laughs> has still like serious racist shit in it. Yeah, but like it's ripping on the racist. But, yeah. I mean, it is racist. It's fuck. I don't know. I love yeah. Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles is one of my favorites too. Yeah. There's some good comedy in the 70s. Kids but I mean, that's that's one of the things I always love about the Pythons is that uh, like 95%, like for comedy being the most perishable genre, you know, notoriously, yeah. 95% of their shit still holds up really well today. Because yeah. they're just fucking timeless jokes. For the most part, they punch up. Yeah. Whereas jokes that punch down or, you know, that make fun of, make light of like marginalized groups or something like that. Like you look at those even like five or 10 years later and you're like, holy shit, that's cringy. But yeah. they all almost always punch up or just go for straight up like absurdity that yeah. is just funny any day of the week kind of thing. Like funny in like a Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin kind of way. I always wonder if anybody's ever, maybe somebody has written like an academic paper about like oh, Monty Python and Mel yeah. Brooks's like insane, like seventies move. Cause like the shit, yeah. the two of them, like both were doing was just like, it's still a comedy goal to this day. Like all of it holds up for the most part. Like, yeah. Like young Frankenstein and shit. Like holy god, Frank Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Oh, fuck. <laughs> That's a Mel Brooks is one. Like we got to do those director series at some point because it'd be really fun to do a Mel Brooks episode. Yeah, and just like get into like young Frankenstein and or then do Python too and like do yeah. Life for Brian and do yeah for sure absolutely nice. Well, that finishes us off for this week. Then thank you everybody for listening. If you have anything to say about the comic runs that we have recommended here or you want to recommend your own or you read one of these and want to say yeah i loved it or hated it or whatever you can do so at our facebook page which is facebook.com slash dance robot dance you can email us at dance robot dance podcast at gmail.com you can get us on twitter at drd underscore podcast and if you are not already you can subscribe to our podcast on basically any podcatching app be it google podcast apple podcast stitcher or spotify Spotify. So with that, we'll say good evening. Say bye, Mark. Have a good one, guys. And I will say good night. And uh, yeah, go read some comics. Yeah, there's lots of comics to read. We give you good recommendations. Yep. Go read X Machina. <laughs>